One should never do that when one is opening a radio a radio show, particularly on a Saturday night. On the second day of the new year. Happy New Year, everyone. Oh, my God. Let us pray and hope and bow to all the gods there are that uh, 2020 is definitely somewhere in the distant and rapidly receding mirror. Um, We have some surprises tonight. We're going to be talking about some really, really huge things, kind of planetary landscape kind of things, kind of where are we in the grand cosmic cycles of the physics, which are inexorably driving us toward something. But I can't tell you tonight what, and I don't think my guests tonight are going to be able to tell you what. Um, I'll tell you what, let's, let us do this, okay? Uh, what I want to do is I want to introduce our, um, our panelists, and I want to kind of swing directly into the conversation. The only thing I want to point to you in Radio with Pictures tonight in my section is one item. Um, a couple, three weeks ago, we did a few shows, a couple, three shows on this bizarre series of monoliths, highly tetrahedral, three-dimensional monoliths incorporating the geometry, the scaling, the ratios of, you know, tetrahedra inside spheres and placed at key geometric latitudes and oriented off due north at 19.5 degrees. Anyway, a month ago, there was one reported on, I think, the uh, 23rd or so of November. And now, about a month later, there are over 87 and counting all over the world. It is a meme. From the first three, we know there was some kind of plan. Now, of course, because of the multiplicity and complexity of the appearance of these things, whoever is doing them, and there appear to be some very enthusiastic, um, shall we say, co-creators out there. Um, we used to call them copycats. This is at a more sophisticated level. There's something at a higher level going on, and it's moving us in a certain direction. And if you ignore 99% of the noise in the media on all sides, which apparently have not a clue as to what's really driving whatever it is that's driving this train somewhere, and you begin to look at the outliers, the outliers are forming a coherent picture, some of which we're going to be taking up tomorrow night when I do a uh, very interesting discussion with an author of a uh, series of studies in the ancient American tradition, Roman Artifacts. And he's written a book called Romerica. And so when I talk with David Brody tomorrow night, it's going to be a kind of a segue to some of the things we're going to be setting in motion tonight in terms of America, the North American continent, as the future Rome of the 21st century. And we'll be looking more in detail at some of the implications of that again tomorrow night. Tonight, um, I have three of our friends of the other side of midnight, and I thought it would be appropriate to gather them together and to kind of assemble Uh, this panel for this very open-ended and far-out discussion. In the third hour, we're going to open the phones so you can join us, and I'll give out those phone lines 
shortly. We have on our panel tonight uh, Rick, Mar- uh, Rick Merlin Levine, professional astrologer since 1976. Rick Levine has become a respected leader in the global astrological community. He is the past president of the Washington State Astrology Association, co-founder of StarIQ.com, a founding trustee of Kepler College, co-author of eight years of Barnes & Noble's annual Your Astrology Guide. Rick wrote a daily column for nearly 17 years, delivered by the Internet to millions of readers per day throughout tarot.com. His expanded daily Planet Pulse is still available on Instagram at Rick Levine Astrologer and on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Rick Levine Astrologer. He is the subject of a DVD, Quantum Astrology, Science, Spirit, and Our Place in the Cycles of History. And his internet videos have reached tens of thousands of people every single month. Another of our panelists tonight is um, Georgia Lambert. Georgia has over 50 years of experience in the field of esoteric studies, received formal training in the Eastern and Western disciplines, methods, and traditions, and was the first to be licensed by the state of California to teach meditation and esoteric physiology. An experimental course she presented for three years at the College of Osteopathic Medicine um, of the Pacific. She also was heavily involved with Manly Hall for over a decade, and that is, of course, one of the reasons we call her our resident metaphysician. The third member of our panel tonight is Dr. Richard B. Spence, professor of history at the University of Idaho. His interests include Russian and military history along with espionage, occultism, and anti-Semitism. His major published works include Boris Savinkov, Renegade on the Left, Trust No One, The Secret World of Sidney Riley, Secret Agent 666, Aleister Crowley, British Intelligence and the Occult, and Wall Street and the Russian Revolution, 1905 to 1925. And you can read the rest of their bios there. You know, um, I was threatening earlier that I was going to introduce everyone tonight with the kind of um, uh, joke that goes something like this. Um, an historian, a metaphysician, and an astrologer walk into a bar. What happens? <laughs> well, guys, tonight happens. Welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight. Good evening, everybody. Hi, Georgia. And this is Rick. Happy to be here as always. Mr. Levine, a.k.a. Merlin. Right. And this is Richard. I guess I'll go by that. The other Richard. Uh, happy to be here. Uh, Richard Spence, Dr. Spence. Yes, we will call you Richard tonight, and I will just be your unnamed host. <laughs> um, okay, guys, uh, we're all watching what's going on. We all are so grateful that it's now 2021. Um, Rick, let's start with you. There have been some major astrological events in the last couple, three weeks, and there are some that are coming up. How in the model that these, this reality, this bumpy flight, this uh, bizarreness that seems to have no end, both in the political realm, in the psychological realm, in the general consciousness realm, in the who do people trust realm, seems to have no end in sight. Rick, what kind of astrological things are setting this, this table 
and setting this landscape in terms of bizarre excursions of frequency? Well, there there are some that are incredibly specific, and we are absolutely right on target. I have two things to say to begin with. One is that um, astrologically, 2020 won't really end until the end of January, and I'll explain more about that in a moment. And then the second thing is, is I thought Kinthea wanted to say Happy New Year. Aw, Happy New Year, everyone. Yes, by all means. Is that a yes? <laughs> Hello, oh, Richard. Uh, uh, sorry, Kinthea. Yes, yes, I'm sorry. Uh, one of the things <laughs> before we really got into our morning program, would you want to add a fourth member to the panel, who is my esteemed uh, executive producer of The Other Side of Midnight and The Other Side of the News. And Kinthea, I guess you have a few words for the audience apropos of the time of the season we're in once again. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. And thank you, Merlin, <laughs> for the little nudge. I really appreciate it. So I want to wish all our friends here a good, a good evening and a happy new year. And I, I just want to say a couple words and then I will turn the show back to Richard. I love him so much. <laughs> there is a core thread that joins all beings on a necklace of creation. And that thread is energy. And for us, it's our humanity. That energy is the embodiment of our compassion and supports our desire to see our world thrive. So as a producer of both The Other Side of Midnight and The Other Side of the News, I receive messages and emails. Some of them are from confused listeners about the programming on The Other Side of the News. So I'm here to tell you it's not about Democrats or Republican rats. And to you, I say, one cannot ask the wrong question and then recognize the right answer. So as we enter this new year, I want to share with you what is true of this collaboration of creativity and intent. For nearly 40 years, Richard and I have partnered on projects, research, books, videos, and now these shows. We cannot escape that we value and respect each other. And as such, we do not censor each other. This surprises some of the listeners because our views of the global crisis appear to be in stark contrast. But our intent is one, 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 that our loved ones and our world thrive. So here's what I can tell you as the producer of these two shows. I'm committed to standing for your right to choose. As some of you may have noticed, the other side of midnight and the other side of the news frequently differ in their perceptions of world events. <laughs> you think? If you have a membership, <laughs> it is for the other side of midnight. And the other side of news is an additional show that augments the other side of midnight, which has its own voice. In these challenging times, there are multiple polar divides. We believe... True discernment comes from the reporting of both sides of any issue. Richard and I are of an understanding that you are sovereign beings, and as such, you all have the right to access all viewpoints for your own research, and thus, it's for you to choose the information which you believe will best enhance your life. 
Richard and I are passionate and we're loyal. And on some things we agree and on some things we don't. We don't use that to beat each other up nor reject each other. So when you find a cord of love that binds, the stories make no difference. I say this because, dear friends, together collectively, we're entering a new world as well as a new year. And I'm asking our listeners to pay attention to their own internal truth, to what it's telling them. You are a free will being, and it is for you to select what you want to immerse yourself in. We encourage you to choose the stories that unite the people and let the stories of division drop away from lack of substance or support. So happy new year, my dear friends. May these times of change open us all to the unfolding wonder. And thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. And back to you. You know, so much interesting synchronicity because I was thinking of saying something at the top of the show, very similar tonight, you know, Rob, Robin, Robin's obviously thinking of us. Kinti and I've known each other uh, decades, literally decades. And I've watched through her eyes, a perspective on a whole other set of realities that frankly, I find very difficult to follow. Now, admittedly, I'm a left brain kind of guy and Kinti is a right brain kind of gal. And hopefully as we move through this process, this physics, this extraordinary turbulence, which is turning up all kinds of interesting stuff, uh, there will be a synthesis. There will be a coming together. At the moment, going back to my discussion with Rick Levine, the frequencies, Rick, appear to be really, really polarized Mm -hmm. and becoming more so. And so the events that are going to be happening in the not-too-distant future, and I totally agree from my perspective, that 2020 is not ended yet. The, the, these energies don't cut off because of arbitrary dates. We're looking at overlaps. We're looking at mixing of frequencies, what we used to call heterodyning. And it's hopefully out of that analysis that we can make some predictions of what could be about to happen next. Yes, and and um, exactly. And I just also want to say to... to um, uh, Kinthea, thank you for that. And that's part of what's going to be so important, not just in 2021, but in the years ahead, because we have our work cut out ahead of us, um, regardless of what label we carry, not only politically, but with respect to just about every issue that's out there. Um, we have seen this kind of divisive extreme, um, whether it's um, about politics in the United States, whether it's about globalism, whether it's about vaccinations, whether it's about um, origin of viruses, whether it's about um, our place in the universe with other beings, intelligences that are non-terrestrial, whatever the issue is, they're, they're, the, the extremes are so, so great. And from an astral 2020 was an absolute eye of a needle. It was the eye of a storm. We might be through the eye of the storm. And astrologically, I am here to say that we are through the eye of the storm. However, anyone who knows anything about meteorology knows that while you're in the eye of the storm, it's perfectly safe. 
<laughs> and now coming through the eye of the storm to the other side, we have some pretty intense winds and waters and weather um, physically and metaphysically to deal with. Um, but 2020 was a year that astrologers have been talking about um, in their professional discussions for a good 20 years or more. 2020 is um, a once in a many lifetime year on many, many different levels. And I'm not going to compare it um, qualitatively, let's say, to um, um, the uh, bombing of Pearl Harbor and the entrance of the United States into um, into uh, World War II from our perspective. I'm not going to compare it to um, other global pandemics um, particularly, but this, is a, this was um, a year when a 30-year cycle, 35-year cycle or so of Saturn and Pluto was exact, and yet it had ramifications that made it be actually a one in 500 year. From an astrological point of view, I don't want to descend into astrological techno tech, tech, uh, um, astrological tech, um, what's the word I'm looking for, um, technicalities. Um, but that was how the year opened um, one year ago, actually on January 12th. And then we had um, three alignments of, of Jupiter, which is a 12-year cycle with Pluto, um, and that in itself was another layer, and that happened throughout the year three times from Earth's point of view in April, June, and in October, um, actually November. Um, and on top of that, we then ended the year with this once every 20-year cycle of Jupiter and Saturn, but even that became, um, yes, it's a once every 20 year cycle, but only once every, she's more like uh, 1200 years is the conjunction so close that it actually looks visibly like a, a single point in the sky to the naked eye. And only once every 200 years does it change um, element astrologically. When you put all this together, you basically realize that 2020 um, as we lived through it, for those of us who actually did live through it, um, it, 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 it was, it was a, a, the eye of the storm. Now, coming out of the eye of the storm, January may be as rocky a road um, or as rough seas as we've had because a lot of the clashes coming to a head will continue to. And then all through 2021 and 2022, we're still, still dealing with um, – these two ways of looking at reality that I'm going to call the old and the new. And I know it's much more complex and much more nuanced than that. Um, but we have a changing of, of the guard on many different levels. And, um, and, and what we're seeing here on top of that is a level of technological change that has pushed us through another eye of a needle. And that is we live in a world now. Now, let me back up. We, we grew up in a world, um, we of our generation, yours and mine, Richard and, um, and Georgia and Kinthea, and I'm sure some other people here probably, um, Dr. Richard also, um, in a world where there were two types of literature, where there was fiction and nonfiction. There was a, a unilateral look at what history was with points along the history timeline. Um, we had a view of things that had an absolute and discrete um, wall, and I'm using that word very specifically, between here and there, between truth and lies, 
between fiction and nonfiction, between reality and things that did not exist. And that wall has disintegrated. It has dissolved. Astrologically, that world is, that, that world is described, the dividing line, by the planet Saturn, which the ancients knew as the gatekeeper between here and there. Saturn and Satan is etymologically the same. Lucifer was light energy that fell through the gates of Saturn and materialized here in the three-dimensional world. To the ancients, the three-dimensional world, the world of the infra-Saturnian vibrations, was all that was true. Everything else was divine outside of the realm of humanity. Well, we've stepped through that, uh, that uh, metaphysical looking glass, if you will, and uh, that glass darkly. And we now live in a world where we've lost, um, we've lost the grounding of a single um, unilateral mono reality. Um, uh, before the show, Richard, you used the word bifurcation, and I immediately wanted to come in. No, the word is trifurcation or multiplication. Uh, for, I don't know what the word is, but but reality has, has has like it's like a cancer that has metastasized. And there are as many realities now as there are points of view and perspectives. And that is frightening because something as simplistic as an election that um, that has had very specific uh, in one reality results in another reality is just a total illusion and the results are totally different. Now I'm not commenting on, uh, on that because time will play that out. Um, but, yes. But, 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 and, and I'm honoring what Kinthea said um, about the polarization. Um, and yes, I have my perspectives and my points of view, but it doesn't matter what your perspective and your point of view is because, and listen to this carefully, your perspective your point of view is not the only point of view. Get over it. Now, that doesn't mean that you are wrong and everyone else is right. It doesn't mean that you are right and everyone else is wrong, because here's the problem with unilateral points of view, and that is that we have a lot of very intelligent people. In, and again, I'm not here talking presidential politics. I'm talking almost any issue you can come up with. You have experts that will come down with extreme views on one side versus the other. And if we're going to make it through this, we have to find common ground. Kinthea said it so uh, much better than I uh, would have uh, or even could have. And that is we all want the same thing. <laughs> we all want to survive. We all want to be happy. We all want to get through life with, 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 with something that has personal meaning, and we want to do it in a way that, you know, that, that will allow us to do it. And the problem is that reality, or let me say our perception of reality, infringes on us in many ways. It says, you need to wear a mask. And someone says, well, no, that's the government telling me I need to do this and I'm a sovereign being and I don't need to do that. Well, that same government says you need to stop at a red light and there you're willing to. And I'm not saying that one is right and one is wrong. I'm saying we need to examine, you know, where those boundaries are at what we're willing to agree to for the common good and what we're willing or what we're unwilling to. And and it's it's very tricky territory because whatever anyone thinks it's not the whole truth. And in fact, I've been saying for over a year that I don't care what you know to be true. It isn't. 
And I would say the same thing with what I know to be true. It isn't. And if you meet someone who knows what's going on, if you meet someone who really, really, really knows what's going on, uh, they don't. And that's the frightening <laughs> thing is that even the people that were running the show, even the people behind the people, the, the puppeteers, the, 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 if you want to call them the, the money masters, the Illuminati, the, I don't care what you want to want to call whoever the power structure is behind the apparent power structure. They used to know what was going on because they were pulling all the strings and they've lost control too. And that is exciting and frightening. Hmm. Rick, question. We found out, at least the public, you and I, of course, knew this a long time ago, but the public kind of found out as relatively recently as the as the presidency of Ronald Reagan in the uh, 1980s um, because of Nancy Reagan, that certain affairs of state were carefully planned by Nancy to correspond to astrological high points. Yeah, like the meeting at Reykjavik was choreographed. The timing of that and even the phone call that initiated that was choreographed by a San Francisco astrologer named Joan Quigley, who was a full-time employee of Nancy Reagan's for seven of the eight years that Reagan was in office. See, this is one of those areas where there is an in-crowd and an out-crowd. The in-crowd, given, excuse me, that they all do it, knew that this was merely Nancy Reagan using this physics for the best possible positioning of Ronnie and the country and the political agendas that he had and that they had and, you know, moves on like that. Yeah. The outside world, the press, the general public appeared to be shocked and askance at that this would be actually part of a secret uh, you know, statecraft. Well, yep. we've you now fast forward the film. We're in 2021. We have the current president of the United States, Donald J. Trump, on Christmas Eve, planning to sign with great flourish and pomp and circumstance at Mar-a-Lago this desperately needed COVID-19 fiscal rescuing of the country bill. Right. And Mm -hmm. and then suddenly, for no reason at all, he doesn't sign, and he doesn't sign, and he doesn't sign. And I'm looking at this, and I'm saying, this appears to be a ritual. And then a couple, three days later, I discovered that because they commingle the two bills, the COVID-19 rescue package and the normal budget process, for a total of about $2.3 trillion, the normal functionings of government were also covered in the bill. They didn't separate them out. It was one lump package. And right. as, as you know, he had some serious issues with the um, uh, National Defense Authorization Act and refused to sign that and actually vetoed it and it had to be overcome by Congress to pursue the original act. In the other act, the delay made zero sense. Like every commentator said, wait a minute, it's, it's, it's going to be, you know, a zero-sum game. He waits, he loses the high ground, he loses the edge, he loses the, you know, particular positioning of, you know, the president as savior. 
and he gets what in return? Nobody could see what he got in return. When you return at the bottom of the hour, I'm going to tell you what I think President Trump got by waiting those few days to sign this critical act. And it's frankly going to surprise a lot of people. So let's hold it there. I kind of wanted to go out at the bottom of the hour uh, on this um, escapade. I wanted to uh, present something that we've been planning, which is kind of apropos of where we are in, um, in, in this particular uh, part of the year. This is, uh, th- this is uh, New Year's. This is, you know, that great time of transition. Well, I found through a little bit of digging a digitized version of the original song, Auld Lang Syne, by Guy Lombardi and the Royal Canadians from 1947. Anybody want to take a listen? Here we are. done that is because they know and have openly admitted that it's unenforceable so if they kept everyone locked down over christmas they know that everyone's going to ignore it because you're going to go and see your family at christmas of course you are and they know that you've got 65 million people in the uk you can't you can't please 65 million people 
going to each other's houses for Christmas. You can't do it. There's not enough police officers. So what they've done to try and keep some kind of, you know, appearance of power is give us those days. So it's like, I know you're going around each other's houses, but we let you do it because that's better than keeping us locked down, us all doing it anyway, and them openly showing their weakness, which which they have. They can't enforce it. And, and the police chief, chief constables, has said as much that it's unenforceable. And so that's what I think people need to realize is that all these music venues could open, all these theaters could open, all these restaurants could open, all these bars could open, as long as they all opened, because then it's unenforceable. Hello everyone, my name's Gareth Ike. It's been a pleasure to talk on the other side of the news. Fantastic conversation with Kinthea, Timothy and Annetta. And I wish you all the best with a fantastic podcast. Cross my aching arms Body language clear Breeze my breaking heart Make my stand right here For action over hope Make my stand right here For action over hope Welcome back to the other side of midnight on this Saturday night, the 2nd of January, 2021. Uh, Rick, before you went to the break, you were, you were touching on something really important. Because the deeper problem that I see in this culture is we're going through this extraordinary set of transitions, is that people who have known each other for decades, who have respected each other's process, approach, et cetera, et cetera, are almost in some cases like strangers. It's like yes. you've, you've like known these people, known these for, people decades, for decades and we've got an echo got somewhere an in the background we need to kill. And, and it's like you're talking to someone that you almost don't know. And I've compared this on many previous occasions, both on the air and off the air, to something of literally biblical proportions when, according to sacred texts coming down through the Western tradition, before a major catastrophe, God literally confounded their language so they could not understand each other and could not complete the tower to heaven. This is, of course, the... uh, 
Babylonian biblical tower story. The idea of confusing language. I'm beginning to think, Rick, that we're looking at something so much deeper than the superficial definitions of language. It's like we have people now that are self-segregating and they literally are looking at the world in a totally different way. Yeah, the I think what we're looking at here is um, I don't know how familiar you or your listeners are with the uh, work of Marshall McLuhan, um, who wrote uh, a book. Many people know the medium is the message, which is really the medium is the massage. How <laughs> what is being said on the media is secondarily important to the media itself. Um, he was basically um, a, a historian and a student of, 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 of media and its impact. And McLuhan said um, new media is an extension of a biological function. And that with, like, for example, um, uh, the printing press um, emphasized the I because we see seeing is believing we read. Um, and that with the advent of electronic and digital technology, that our nervous system has been externalized and that, in fact, we have now an exo-nervous system, the World Wide Web, if you will. The problem is that, um, that the difference between, uh, be, be, between being uh, neurotic and schizophrenic is very simple. And that is a neurosis can be managed through dialogue because we, you tell the truth, you go back, you recreate the story. But schizophrenia cannot be cured uh, by dialogue alone because there is an absolute break and, and, and the two different personalities or more have totally different perceptions of reality. And the more they communicate, the wider those differences become. Here's the problem. We've flipped out, and that's a McLuhan term that he initiated when he talked about the process of our nervous system flipping out, and we, like, like, a, a, like a turtle with the hard exoskeleton, we've become soft-shelled because our nervous system now is on the outside. We've flipped out, and we're schizophrenic. Well, now that's interesting. By the way, everybody else, you know, Georgia, Rick, uh, please join in. I don't mean to segregate things, but I wanted to kind of – get us off on the foundation of what I've been looking at, which is this interplay in the, in the physics of these frequencies, creating all kinds of short-term and long-term catastrophic kind of mini cycles where you think something is chaotic, but it's really part of a larger plan, a larger pattern that you're not seeing. Well, Richard, the thing is that, um, and, and I really want to come back so that you can finish your 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 punchline on on the uh, timing of what you know just has happened. But the timing is kind of crazy because um, on the night of the solstice on Christmas Eve, 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 on the night of December twenty first, <laughs> right? Um, we had this exact Jupiter Saturn conjunction, which is in fact a cultural seed point for for twenty years. As I said earlier, this one is even more important. By the way, if anyone is interested in the astrology, um, the, the technical side of the astrology stuff, um, best to go to my Instagram page and there's links there to more of the technical stuff that I really don't want to get encumbered with tonight because I know so many people here, you know, are, it's not their language. So I don't want to descend into that language. The fact is, though, that astrologically, January um, 4th through the 8th, 
is a major, major, major storm period. And obviously in the United States, you know, politically. Oh my God, it covers exactly the window. No, no, I understand that. And, and, And I could say just, you know, very briefly, again, without descending into technicality, you know, Mercury lines up with Pluto, the Lord of the underworld. So things are spoken. This is January 4th. Mars Uh, the god of war and passion, uh, which has been in his own home sign since last June, which has really brought all of the anger and the redness and the the feistiness and the fire. All of that's been so on the surface, Mars closer to Earth than it is every other year. It goes retrograde when it gets close to Earth. Mars has been in, Mars normally is in the sign for about seven weeks. Um, Mars has been in the sign of Aries for six months. And Mars moves out of Aries on January 6th into Taurus. And within a day or two, both Mercury and Venus change signs. This is a huge, a Mm. huge shift of energy on the 4th through the 8th. (laughs) Then then, then we we, we have this incredibly potent um, new moon on the 12th. And again, I don't want to dig in deeply here, but it's a very power, it's power struggle stuff. And then... Starting on the 19th, um, um, there's really kind of a beginning of a shift that comes to a fruition and a culmination this month um, that is really not does not play through until the full moon on the 28th. Um, but we have um, uh, definitely almost like like an instant replay of all of the stuff that was all all the issues of 2020 you know it's like that when at the moment of death your entire life flashes you know um, in in one moment um Mm. this is almost like january becomes a microcosm of 2020 which is why 2020 isn't really over until we get past that full moon on the 28th of january um and, and and so it's a very intense month um it's and yet we we are not going back through the eye of the needle that we've already been threaded through. And that's the important thing, but that doesn't mean that it's all going to be easy flowing and smooth. Can I add uh, something in here? By all means. Uh, just on top of what Rick was just describing to us, there's a natural cycle in the year itself between um, uh, winter solstice, which was December 21st, and Candlemas, or Imbolc, which is February the 2nd. This particular period of time each year was called in ancient uh, times the terror time because the cycle of matter delivers the Christ or the, the light for that cycle on winter solstice. And then it has to sort of reverginize itself to start the cycle again, February 2nd. So this period of time, this terror time between the winter solstice and February 2nd or Candlemas. Is or a Groundhog that, Day. <laughs> or Groundhog Day, yes, is, is a time when everything is thrown to the wind. Everything is mobile. Everything is uh, just chaotic and in motion. But because it's in motion, it's also a time of opportunity to slip new stuff in because things are in motion and not fixed. Yeah, the pro-creative potential right now is huge, but it also um, it, it, it feels chaotic. And remember, chaos is not random. 
chaos is a natural um, place between the ending of one order and the beginning of another. Biologically, you know, chaos is reached when a system reaches maximum complexity. Mm. And we have certainly seen ourselves thrust into that and this period of darkness, you know, uh, at the winter solstice in the northern hemisphere. Um, you know, it's, it's like this is the beginning of the sun's return to the light. But it's not until after Imbolc, until the, the cross-quarter date around 15 degrees of Aquarius, halfway through the fixed sign of Aquarius, it's not until then that it's absolutely for sure that it's getting light faster. You know, it's like that's the materialization of the thought that occurs at the moment of total total darkness or the longest night, the Yule tide, whatever you want, however you want to refer to it. Um, but Astrologically, um, we definitely have um, a large-scale event. I've said this here before on your show, Richard, um, that even the Saturn-Pluto conjunction, which historically has been related to uh, pandemics, it was active during Black Death, for example, um, uh, but that which occurred on January 12th was the day that the Wuhan um, uh, labs announced the first uh, mortality of this virus and also announced the sequencing, which is kind of an interesting kickoff to this whole year. But what's also important is that this 35, 38 year cycle um, of Saturn and Pluto, which of which the halfway point was in the autumn of 2001. Gee, I wonder if anything important happened then, hmm. September 11. Um, but Oddly enough, Richard, the, the recording that you played from 1947, that was the previous time that Saturn-Pluto joined was in the uh, midsummer of 1947, within a few days of the um, uh, separation of Pakistan and India um, and the um, um, in India's uh, independence oh, from the British Empire. Uh, just within, I mean, within five days of that event. Um, and then the next conjunction was in 1982, um, which was an Isra the Israeli incursion into Lebanon. And it was also, oddly enough, the year that the movie Gandhi came out. And this whole Indian thread is very interesting historically, going back to 1898, um, too long to go into right now. Point being, though, that Saturn-Pluto um, conjunction that kicked off 2020 in Saturn's home sign of Capricorn, the last time that occurred was in January of 1519, about um, a month, maybe um, more like a little bit less than two months after Martin Luther nailed the theses, the 95 mm. theses on the church wall that basically kicked off the Protestant Reformation, which we call the Protestant Reformation. But we've, in a way, 2020 is the beginning. Um, it was the nailing of this new way of looking at things on the wall of reality that will ultimately change everything. Now, here's the problem is that we're still in the midst of the event, just like if you had been living at the time of Martin Luther being excommunicated and the intensity mm. of the battle between the, the, the church, Rome, um, and, um, and those separating from that authoritative power, you wouldn't have had any idea of what would have taken a couple of hundred years to become 
the power of that reformation. And by the same token, we don't know how this is going to play out and we don't know where this is going to go in 50 years or 100 or 200 years. But it's a year of that importance. And January has that instant replay kind of like going into overtime. Um, and it's going to be quite, quite powerful. Rick, I heard you chortling as our resident historian there in the background. Uh, thoughts? Uh, chortling. Well, I've, I've I've been listening in in uh, in fascination to all of this. Well, you know, as a resident historian, not you know, I'm not coming at it from the from the standpoint of of astrology or anything. I, the one thing I guess that that as an historian, I I could throw into that is that certainly history is is nothing but patterns. So I'm I'm just going to look at it from what an historian looks at. It looks at people and events. Who was it, Rick, who said that history doesn't necessarily rhyme, but it sure as hell sometimes or, or, or repeats it. It sure as hell sometimes rhymes. No, it was it was it was attributed falsely to Mark Twain, who allegedly said history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Ah. However, it's an incorrect attribution, and it yeah. was not Mark Twain. Although you'll see that in writing everywhere. <clears throat> so we don't know who said this. That is correct. Very interesting thing, that's, because, because yeah, the, that's, the that's idea, yeah. the, the idea of mixing tonight's conversation between grounded mainstream history, metaphysics, which is open-ended. And the astrological mechanisms of, you know, multiple fields interacting with each other, creating reality. I mean, that's kind of like the basis of what I'm looking at what's going on and saying the only way we have of predicting what can happen now is by going back and looking at what happened before. And that's why I chose tonight's banner picture, which is the White House being burned down in 1812 by the British. Well, tonight we're literally on the edge of, if not a literal, a figurative burning down of the transition between duly elected administrations with intense polarization politically on both sides. And I don't know whether the country has ever faced something this fundamental in terms of looking at a basic almost trivial reality who got more votes can i jump in here that's as the cue uh, as, as the uh, the historian in this case it's the the problem with trying to seek answer, seek the future in the past is that you're never going to find it exactly all right and, and that's very often what people want they want to be able to go back and say if we look through past events if we look at these patterns if we, we we can see what's going to happen you you can get an idea of the possibilities of what are going to happen you can you can know that something is coming but i don't think that you can find the future in the past if you think you have you're going to be wrong because it never repeats itself exactly and yeah. I, I think that's one of the things you have to be careful of is that we can always, I mean, I could give you historically, let's put it, here, here's one out of my kind of, you know, bailiwick, is that when the Bolsheviks seized power in Russia in 1917, uh, they were Marxist revolutionaries and they were, you know, going to embark upon a, a, a grand new 
crusade that was going to change the world. You know, this was the idea that the revolution in Russia wasn't going to be there. It was going to ignite a world revolution. It was going to create a completely new paradigm for all of humanity and the entire planet. It was the single biggest turning point in history. Now, a lot of things came out of that, but none of it exactly what anybody wanted. And the model that they went back and looked, the idea was, look, we're, we're, we've just overthrown the, the imperial Russian, you know, we're actually, we've overthrown the provisional government. There's this whole sea change in Russia. It's going to ignite a sea change in the world. What's the closest approximation we have to our event? What do we need to study in some way? Well, the French Revolution. That was it. And we'll go back and we'll examine the French Revolution. And the French Revolution, if we study it closely, if we, if we go through, if we examine it like tea leaves, then we'll find all the things to do right and all the things to do wrong. Because, see, we can go back and we look at what the Jacobins and Robespierre and the others did, and we can simply, you know, and we can, we can follow their paths where they were right, and we can avoid the missteps when they were wrong. Uh, and how did that work out? Well, it worked out horribly, mm. right? They, they, were, they were following a model which was from a different century in a different country in a different culture. And they really even didn't pay attention to one of the things. If, if they paid attention to the French revolution, they noticed that one of the places that the whole thing began to go off the rails was with the terror. And yet one of the things that the Bolsheviks would introduce, they saw that they were compelled to introduce was political terror, which was going to eventually become the curse, the kind of cancer of, of the whole regime. And you know, the, the problem is that people go back to the past and they, and they pick and choose. They cherry pick those things that they want that will kind of confirm their idea of what the future is supposed to be or what it can be. And it never works out that way. Right? We are, you know, as historians, at least as humans are generally, are lousy at predicting the future. We have some. So right now, I would say as an historian is that, yeah, the country is in a very weird state. Maybe the entire world, maybe the entire universe is in a world state. I don't know. But right here in the United States of America, we are living through a very peculiar and weird time. There is all kinds of dangerous potential which exists. There's the potential for violence, political and social, which so far has not materialized, but which could. I think we're all sitting around waiting. I don't know whether we're waiting for the other shoe to drop or we're waiting for the first shoe to drop in this case. But there's this this tension, you know, which is also brought on by the increasing social isolation of people, um, the, the, the whole, in many ways, the, the kind of fear of other people, which is being inculcated by the virus. I mean, you know, when you go the out economic public, pressures. Economic pressures, you know, the fact that there are millions of people who are, you know, counting the days down uh, when they when they can be evicted, you know, that keeps getting kicked down the road. Unemployment, you know, um, the, the deficit grows large. There's all of these things with, which have the potential to happen, and I think it's, I think in some ways, as as a friend of mine put it the other day, they just wish that something would happen. Okay, something would happen. You know, if there's going to be civil war, well, then at least let there be a civil war. Then we'll know what we have to face. Uh, it's this idea of not knowing what's going to happen, waking up every morning in this kind of state of, of, of constant suspense and anxiety of not knowing what's going to take place. Um, you know, I, I guess one of the things that you, Rick, would agree through the stars or whatever sort of process, are, things will work their way out. They're, they're gonna, that's going to happen. Yes, and Richard, I would also agree with another thing, and that is many astrologers believe they can predict the future, 
um, mm -hmm. by looking at the past. And it, again, we can look at the past to see the trajectory, but there's always the, um, the, the potential of the unexpected moment of the present that does not conform to what we would like it to, because just like you said, the planets are never ever in the same position as they were. It's always a new moment physically and metaphysically things are always changing we are pattern seekers you and i historians and astrologers um but it doesn't mean that we can apply those patterns mechanically because the universe is not mechanical there's a mechanical component but it is not ultimately mechanical yeah we can see how those patterns worked out previously and that may give you a kind of general idea as to what the potential is, but uh, I, I, you know, I, I would agree that we're, you're, you're really dead wrong if you think that you can pinpoint what is going to happen. You know, to speak to uh, what Dr. Spencer was uh, just talking about, uh, studies have been done where um, they set up an experiment with rats that uh, have to get an electric shock every time they push a bar for food. And they got used to it. They just learned that, yeah, I'll get food, but there's a little shock that goes with it, and that's just the way it is. The other group uh, was a random electrical shock. Sometimes it happened, and sometimes it didn't. It was the second group that developed uh, neurosis and uh, just went crazy because of the not knowing mm. and the unpredictability. Hmm. Georgia, interestingly enough, it's that second group that led to the discovery of what operant conditioning psychologists call Miller's gradient, which is the rat will run towards the bar for food, and the closer it gets, the more conflicted it will be until it can't go forward because it knows it's going to get pain too, but it can't back up because it's hungry. Exactly. And, and when you look at herds of cows, for instance, the ones on the bottom of the, of the pecking order are the most psychologically stable. It's the ones near the top, near the leader, that never knows what's going to happen. They're the ones that have the problems. Hmm. That kind of sounds similar to something, I'm not sure this thing of, uh, anybody heard the term of, of choice paralysis? Yeah, and that's it's it. one of those things that if you simply give people a choice, you know, the very often what people want, probably cows want this too. I don't know. But what people <laughs> often want is that they want to be, they want to be told what to do. Okay. This is true. That's not true. This is what I should do. And, you know, I've found this because I don't know. I, I've, I've been accused of deliberately confounding people. So like, well, we can go this, you know, we, we can do this or we could do this. You know, like, well, let's go out to dinner, you know, back when you could go out to dinner. And I say, well, let's go here. And then, you know, on the weather, well, maybe we could go here or we could go there. So as I would see it, I was simply presenting the other people with a choice. But I'd often find that people would eventually get frustrated and angry because now there was a choice. We were going to go to this place, but now you've thrown up another place. And I don't know whether I want Thai food or I want Chinese food or I want Mexican food. It was very simple when we were just going to get Thai food. And now you've made it much more complicated. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a kind of, be, I mean, I suppose I've been at the other end of that as well, but it's one of the things that you can find in it. And, and in some ways, it's, it's just a kind of principle of giving people freedom. You know, here you have a freedom to make a choice. You can have this, or you can have that, or you can have the other thing. 
And it's then the paralysis that sets in of not being able, of not knowing which one to choose from. Uh, yeah, you know, really good Richard, but, as, but, as, as an astrologer, uh, people often come to me or to the astrologer because they want the answer. And for years, I've been taking the position that, no, if you've come to me for the answer, you've reached the wrong astrologer. You're looking for the answer astrologer. I'm the question astrologer. I'm the one that will help you understand the nature of all of the operative energies at the moment. And how you respond to it, though, is, you know, is, is your decision, not mine. And a lot of people don't like that. They just want to be told what's going to happen. Hey, but hold it there. We're at the bottom of the hour, actually. We're at the top of the hour. I've got to turn my clock upside down. We're kind of doing a reprise of New Year's. New Year's looking way, way back <clears throat> in terms of deep time. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Happy New Year. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this Saturday, January 2nd, 2021. We're looking to see if we, in fact, have left 2020 in the mirror. And, you know, I, 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 I really do agree with you, Rick. Um, the, the imprinting, the patterning, the, 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 uh, the manipulation of the force by these extraordinary celestial events, these alignments... Um, appear to really be driving the system. How much, if, if, if we knock off the idea of specifics and we look at trend curves, can we say anything about when things will peak in terms of current trends? Rick, unmuting helps. I think unmuting helps. Okay, why am I not hearing Rick? 
Am I hearing anybody? George, are you there? I'm here. There yeah, you are. The other Rick is here. Yeah. Rick Levine? I'm here. Mr. Levine. I, I, I think Rick Levine may have left. Yes, he, he signed off. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I I didn't know yeah. someone. My screen did not get updated. So let me let me let me. Uh, we need to kill that background sound. I hate to hear myself going back to the headphones. Um, Georgia, please pick up where we left off because there are these larger metaphysical, shall we say, intimations of of major events coming in this time frame. And yes. we've got some kind of a loop in the background. We need to kill that. Yeah, that's very disconcerting. So, okay. it sounds like you're having an argument with yourself in the background. I know. <laughs> hey, everybody else has had to get used to Skype and Zoom and all this other stuff. So, someone has. Let's let's just try turn off your mic and see if it goes away. Okay, it went it away. It went away. Yeah, who did that though? Who was hearing it? I did nothing. Okay. I did nothing. Okay. Okay. One Georgia. of those mysteries of cybersafety. Yes. Uh, a couple of things. First of all, just pick up on uh, what was put on the table before the break about a choice paralysis. Yes. Part of that is we don't teach our children how to make choices. Parents make choices for them until they're 18, kick them out of the nest, and then wonder why they can't function as adults. Hmm. If, if parents, as part of parenting, learned to teach their children how to make choices in small little bits as they grow bigger and bigger, then we would have um, adults that could, you know, come up to these points in history and uh, and not be so frightened of them hmm. you know it, you know it, it, parents tell their kids you know what to wear to school um, it or on the other hand they say well you pick out what you want to wear and then the little kid picks out pajamas and then the parent <laughs> overrides that you know so what you have to do is you lay out three outfits and you say, which one do you want to wear tomorrow? And you school children into making choices. And that's really where we are in this bigger picture. Humanity is at a choice point. And I think this is a theme that you've explored before, Richard. And I just um, get this feeling, Georgia, and I can't shake it. Like if you look at these sacred texts and you look at these clock changes of cycles and frequencies, and I wish that uh, Levine had stuck around a little longer, you have these rhymings of, of patterns. You have these big nodal points in history. And it's like I'm looking around and it's like we're in the middle of a huge one. And what are the manifestations? Nobody Trusts that is freakily, scarily, absolutely catastrophically freaking me out. <laughs> because if you can't talk to your friends, to your colleagues, to people that that you've known for decades that you've trusted and they've trusted you, and if things come anew and you can't agree on basics, 
I mean, that right there is the seeds of the destruction of civilization itself. Because without trust, nothing can go forward. Nothing. Well, you know, esoterically, we've, we've talked about this on shows before, that esoterically, we are in the third phase of the World War, but it is being fought on the plane of mind. It is a battle for ideas. It is a battle for which reality is going to be chosen. Um, I brought something that, uh, if I can share this just briefly, uh, this was written in 1957 in a book called The Nature of the Soul, and it is an esoteric view of what we're going through now. And it says, Truly, in this present moment does the future meet the past to produce a crisis of opportunity unparalleled in human history. The crisis is one of transition in which those decisions are made and those patterns constructed which will determine the experience of the next 2,500 years. The new Mm. energies and forces are impacting upon the mass consciousness and many forms of expression which, as they impact, produce a condition of instability within the consciousness, the form, and hence the world of affairs. This condition of instability can be likened unto the first two years of a child's life, in which the mold is set to the directional flow of his energies throughout the life experience of this incarnation. This means that humanity stands at the crossroads, the forked path of decision. The discovery by humanity, which is rapidly developing, of mental substance as being the prime matter, and of the will as the magical force which directs that matter into a specific appearance and form, will bring the forked path of decision out into the open. Therefore, we see this period in human history as one of great importance, where the experience pattern by which the growth and development of consciousness is affected can undergo a shift from negative to positive. If humanity can choose the right-hand path, if the world of affairs can be made to reflect the spiritual values, humanity will no longer need to know anguish and pain in order to grow. Experience pattern which produces growth can shift from hate to love, from war to peace, and from an era of conflict to one of harmony. So that was written in 57 about this time and this transition that we're Mm. in right now. Rick, I want to bring you in here because historically I know what we're going through and you might want to kind of enumerate some of the things that we're looking at as part of the background. As far as I can tell is really unprecedented where you have in the chain of succession a president who's doing everything he can in the face of overwhelming numbers to basically say, I'm not leaving. Have we ever historically in the history of the United States, 240 some years, have we ever faced this particular political conundrum before? Well, not that I know of. Now, there may be someone who's, you know, a, a uh, more forensic <laughs> historian of American politics who find, I'm not aware of anybody who's basically just, refused to accept to refuse to quit and it's, and it's basically i mean the thing that, that that trump is doing is making all of this noise about 
staying on. And yet, on the other hand, he seems so far to have been completely ineffectual at it. I mean, the, the question I have is that, you know, and again, I'm not trying to get partisan about this, but really I have to look at it. Is, is this just the example of someone who's a sore loser, right? Right. Is, is, is Donald J. Trump simply a monumentally sore loser who can't accept the fact that he's lost? Let, let's, you know, let's leave aside the question whether he lost fair and square or whether he didn't. But as far as other factors are concerned, uh, you know, Joe Biden is going to be recognized as president next week. You know, again, in that interesting period on, I think, what, January 6th? I was going to say right Rick's that, window yeah. fits right perfectly. In that, that was a little, that's a is, little spooky. Isn't that spooky? Yes. Um, so is he just a monumentally sore loser or is there some, or does he have some kind of, is there a plan? And, you know, I'd have to say that if I was a, 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 a Trump partisan, if I was someone who believed, and there are people, and I've talked to them who believe, I'll take no position on this, that the election was rigged, that Trump was the real winner, that he has been robbed of this. Is there, is there a plan to recover it? Well, you know, so far the legal challenges have been totally ineffectual, and I don't see anything else happening. And if I was a devoted Trump partisan, I would begin feeling very, very frustrated, not just with the turn of events, but also with my glorious leader, who seems to be making a lot of bluster, which is something he seems to be fairly good at, but, but I don't see any kind of effective action. So that's, that's another one of these things about wondering the other shoe is going to drop. I mean, is, is there some big plan? Is there, is there, you know, does Trump actually have some plan to reverse the course of the election next week on the eve of the, of, of Congress's meeting or something, or, you know, before he's supposed to get out of the place, I think on the 20th, I mean, is there something that's happening or is it just, you know, is, um, is he eventually just going to pack up and leave and that'll be it? Hmm. Well, given that we're looking at something that's so unprecedented, I mean, this has been such an intensively compressed set of events that have never happened before, starting with before the election, he, uh, the president, President Trump wanted to arrest his, his, uh, you know, opposition, Joe Biden, for crimes that were never specifically expressed and obviously not acted upon by the Justice Department. And then as we've gone through this process, it's become increasingly obvious that at every juncture there would be opposition, legal, et cetera, to the election of, of a new president and the rejection of the old president, basically in contradiction to every numerical piece of data that I've been able to find. So, uh, George, we go back to what you said about how parents raise children about choice, presenting choice to them, I think it's even more fundamental. I think we're losing something in translation of how do we decide what we believe? Because we're presented every day with a whole bunch of choices about what we're going to believe, right? How do normal, intelligent adults approach a brand new situation and try to decide whether the information they're getting is true or false or how much of it is true or false because it's never 100% on either side and there's usually more than two sides. It just seems to me that the breakdown, Georgia, is even 
at a more fundamental level, which is how do we know what we think we know? Well, you know, uh, in my classes 30, 35 years ago, uh, I would tell people that we're going to come into a time when you're not going to be able to figure it out by the intellect alone. It's going to be so confusing. Um, and there's so many different sides to things that it's not going to be possible. The only thing that human beings can rely on in times like this is their own inner sense of right and wrong and to try to make choices from the highest and best place they can. Will that highest and best place be different for different people? Most assuredly. But if people in their heart, in their mind together, make choices at the highest and best place they can, that is the best of all possible outcomes, no matter what unfolds on the surface. You know, there's another thing, too, about all of these different realities. You know, when, when we grew up, and, and uh, Rick spoke to this, when we grew up, there was a consensus on reality. But if you think about it, we all listened to the same music. The same music was on the radio. Everybody watched the same TV programs and talked about them over the water cooler at the office the next day. It's only been in this last generation where nobody has the same experience culturally anymore. People listen to their own brand of music, uh, their own politics on their uh, iPhones and uh, their chosen uh, internet stations and we don't have a reality that everybody agrees on so nobody has that platform to work from anymore that physicality has been swept out from under us and we're thrown back onto the essential quality of our consciousness and making choices from that place but there's a lot of things in the world and Rick uh, you can join in here that are not amenable to a gut feeling or a gut choice. You have to really make decisions based on information. And then the question is, how and do that's you... Why I, that's why I said heart and mind. And a gut decision is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about something higher than that. Well, and that heart, that, that heart and mind together um, gives that, that sense of... of where you work from. Hmm. Well, I think if I can jump in here, I think part of it, I think gut, a gut feeling is sometimes more than simply a gut feeling. It's a, a, a fairly broad term. There's, there's a supposed saying in the, uh, in the intelligence world that if there's ever a conflict, you know, if you find yourself in a sticky situation and there's a conflict between basically what your mind is telling you, what your, you know, your analytical mind is telling you, and what your gut is telling you. Always go with your gut. Hmm. That's the thing that you, that you trust. And part of the reason for that is it, it comes down to this thing of, you know, you, you're trying to make a choice or you're trying to make a decision based on data. Well, the problem is, is your data reliable? 
Right? Notice, notice the, the, the current fascination about, you know, fake news and, and disinformation and that we're being fed. I mean, one, there's really nothing new about that. Okay. I mean, fake news is as old as news. People have been making up news stories and exaggerating things and, and just completely lying since the beginning of time. And, you know, it, it's a bit like that, the, the Twain coat the quote that, that Rick was talking about, that if you actually, tra- you know, you find something that is attributed to Mark Twain, but you actually begin to investigate it and you find out that it was actually someone else or that you don't know, that there's no there there. And I have to say that in historical research, you know, going back and trying to get back to basics, go back to see what was actually said or what was done, what was reported in the newspapers when the event occurs, what did someone actually say. This is where I find all the time that things that we sort of take for granted as a a kind of reality, things that seem, you know, the narrative, the narrative that has come down to the present time is in many respects false. It's erroneous. It attributes words, it puts words in people's mouth that they, that they never said, that there's no record of it. It may even create events that never existed. But what it does is that it creates a narrative that appears to explain things. And, in do, and, and because we, we want those answers, because we're in many ways so desperate to have things explained, to have someone tell us that this makes sense, and aha, this is the explanation for it, that uh, we tend to accept those things because the, the, the narrative will somehow make sense of it. Where really, if you deconstruct the narrative, what you often find is that there's really not much of a narrative there. What you go back to are a series of, again, fundamentally chaotic, seemingly unconnected events that later get woven into a narrative. I mean, it's something that we make up. It, even reality itself, I think, is something that we fundamentally make up mm-hmm. and this goes goes back i think in in georgia you were talking about that when we all sort of make up that we're all in on the same narrative you know even if it's totally bs if we all sort of buy into the same narrative then we're living in the same reality but when we become balkanized uh you know through through the internet or elsewhere when we're no longer dealing that we're, we're literally in some ways richard no longer speaking the same language or we're speaking the same language but we're understanding the words in different ways and that's that's kind of the situation I and think. that's what's got me really really concerned because if we can't agree on a common reality on common experience on common anything uh, you know in an incredibly complex technological civilization I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm watching these huge things that are attempted, like the rollout now of, this, of the vaccines, and I'm watching catastrophic failures that should not be existing unless, A, they're planned, in other words, we're looking at sabotage, or B, people in complex systems can no longer talk to each other and effectively communicate and get things done on a schedule and if that's true and we're not seeing any news of it because people are just kind of ignoring it as you know we're all in overload and we've been on a year in this excursion into the twilight zone if there are other things that are falling through the cracks as part of this very complex reality we've constructed and we're not noticing because we're too focused on a few narrow things and we're not 
understanding that systems themselves are breaking down because people cannot communicate. Well, what are we basically being told about the vaccines? It boils down to one of two things. Again, it's a choice. You're either being told that the vaccines are safe and that you should take them. And at the same time, you're being told that the vaccines are unsafe and it's a great risk and you shouldn't take them. And that's a very critical decision to make because it's in some ways potentially a life or death decision either way. Are they safe or are they not safe? Are the risks minimal or the risk is great? And in true, I've got people on, you know, governmental authorities. I've got authority figures telling me on one side that they're safe. Would they ever lie to me? Yes. <laughs> and, and we know that. And they not lie. only I mean, would they, but we have demonstrably on the record decades of proof now that they have about a whole range of things. All right. Yes. The, the government, you know, for your own good or otherwise, lies to you all the time and has habitually done so. So if you take everything that, that, that is said by an apparent authority figure at face value, uh, you, you don't know. You simply don't know. And that's, that's one of these critical choices that people will have to make. Which one of those do you want to believe? And it's... it's um, now, you, you know, you could have someone argue that, well, it would almost be easier, even if the vaccines are, you know, really pretty unsafe for everybody to believe they were safe and go ahead and do it. Or I, I don't know. See, that they, they were sort of stuck in, in the uh, on the horns of a dilemma. There we have it. There's a, figure out. there's a choice paralysis that you were talking about before. Yeah. You know, you know. Again, the generation that we grew up with uh, pretty much commandeered the world. You know, we invented things and we had science and medicine and we got a handle on things and we could control things. And then we have something like this pandemic from whatever source dropped in our lap and we can't control it. It came out of the blue, out of nowhere. And that's very disconcerting to the mass consciousness. Well, we can't control things anymore, or go, at least we think we can't. Going back to what you so artfully described a few minutes ago, Georgia, as the world that we grew up in, where there were only three networks, there were two or three major papers, there were a scattering of icons, you know, what they used to call opinion makers, and the world was pretty simple. I'm talking about the the world of the 1950s, the MAGA world, you know, looking back where, you know, Leave it to Beaver and I Love Lucy were the predominant comedy shows predictably every X night at a certain time on a certain network. So the world had a shape. It had a, even in its, its catastrophes, it had a rhyme and a reason that now with so many outlets and so many bloggers and so many opinions and so many people who have access to hundreds of thousands of people and who demonstrably do not a lick of real research. We have been thrown Rick into a universe where nobody knows how to evaluate that which they're reading or seeing because we've, we've gotten away from how do we know what we know. 
And I think that's one of the reasons that people balkanize themselves by, you know, by, by latching on to their particular news outlets, you know, listening to your podcast, listening to, you know, finding the commentators that echo back to you what you want to hear or getting on a social network where people all pretty much share, share the same views and throw them back and forth. And, and that's where you begin to create these little, I'll use the term, balkanized realities that people live in. Um, they find their echo chamber and they stay in it. They find their comfort level and they become very used to that. And I think it's in some cases that you know, I've run across people who seem to be absolutely astounded that anybody else can have a contrary opinion. And if you have a contrary opinion, if you don't agree to them, then you must just be, well, evil. That's got to be it. You have to be a fundamentally bad person if you don't accept what it is that they accept is, is this kind of given this is this is simply true this is real see all my Um, life rick i've been intrigued with the idea of how do we know anything and i was kind of like primed when sidonia came along the idea of you know an ancient civilization on mars and then the model has been expanded and we found artifacts all over the damn solar system on multiple you know programs from different nations nobody is telling anything any to anybody Officially, but they're posting it all over the internet, like for people to come and make their own conclusions. And what I have discovered over the last 30, 40 years of doing what I've been doing is that very few people are equipped to look at the universe of data and begin to figure out how to figure things out. It's very, very disturbing that we don't teach how to figure out the world until it's far too late. Well, um, in my classes, you know, having recently retired, this is in the recent past, but one of the things towards the end of the semester I would always kind of like to, to end on is, you know, we pretty much covered everything that we were going to cover. And it was, it was, to me, it was this kind of occasion. I go, okay, what are we going to talk about that? We're going to talk about anything that we want to talk about. Okay, so this is a course in modern Russian history. It's a course about secret societies. Well, if there's some question you've been setting on that I haven't covered, then what is it? What do you want to talk about? I've even tried that in other sort of seminar classes, you know, sort of small classes of where, well, you know, rather than me coming in here and just picking a topic and yammering at you about it or trying to, you know, trying to get you to answer canned questions that I have, what is it you want to know? And there are a few occasions when that worked, but I would have to say that disappointingly, in the vast majority of cases, I would just get blank stares. Well, actually, not blank stares. I would get kind of anxious stares because, see, again, I'd given this kind of choice. I wasn't. I didn't come in. They weren't just going to sit there and sort of receive wisdom. They now actually had to think of what it was that they wanted to know, and and that was. It was. It wasn't just disappointing. It was kind of saddening in a way that you clearly want to know these things. Can't can't you even you know? How do you enunciate? How do you form a thought in your mind of what it is you don't know that you want to know, or at least the questions that that you're willing to ask? Hmm. And I always hoped that that would turn into one of these, you know, really kind of vital discussions about things. And I could, you know, sort of see the pistons firing in people's minds. And and I have to say that that almost never happened. Hmm. They just kind of sat there waiting for me to lead them. 
Um, Hold it there, right there, okay? We're at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning is Dr. Richard Spence and Georgia Lambert. Uh, we had Rick Levine on earlier. We're grappling with reality. <laughs> Hogland here. I'd like you to support The Other Side of Midnight by subscribing to Club 19.5 and thereby joining our unique and growing radio community. Tune in to listen to our fascinating guests, pioneers on the out there edge of science and thought, and gain access to exclusive member benefits. To do this, just visit our website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the navigator bar or in the left-hand column. Membership costs $19.95 per month. That's 33 tetrahedral cents a day. I mean, it's the price of a couple of cups of coffee. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to this show and literally hundreds of previous shows on hundreds of different topics going back to 2015 that we have done. Our archive shows have the commercials removed and you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the 19-point archives if you prefer. To enhance your listener experience, a new The Other Side of Midnight podcast is being added to all show pages, which will allow you to instantly search the show archives of Radio with Pictures, thus easily accessing the corresponding show. Plus, you can just as quickly access the entire podcast list when you're on the go. I want to personally thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your continuing support, this show would literally not be on the air. Please continue supporting the broadcast to provide you with the most interesting conversation available, talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought, and if you like what you hear on the other side of midnight, tell your friends and continue growing the show by having them subscribe to Club 19.5 as well because we need all of you. And when I say we need you, you're the reason we're doing all this. Hoagland, over and out. Sorry about that little glitch there. We're having a few technical issues behind the scenes tonight. Okay, guys, um, back on the conversation. Um, Rick, let's go to you because I want to ground this in some major historical events. My feeling, based on looking at the physics and based on looking at the politics, is that we're coming up to a step function that we may not have seen in the public record since maybe FDR and the transition between him and his predecessor, uh, Hoover. What do you think? Well, interesting you should mention that because, you know, when I was thinking about being on the show and, you know, you said initially at the idea, you know, were there any kind of 
precedence for the, you know, anything vaguely similar? You know, if you go back to the past, you don't find the exact thing, but is there something that maybe echoes some of the problem, the issues that we have now? Uh, you go back to FDR's election uh, in Ascension in early 1933 in the midst of the Depression, which was a bad time. All right. Um, now, it wasn't as if there hadn't been depressions in American history before that. Uh, wasn't as if there hadn't been, you know, increases in, uh, you know, there had been the Panic of 1893, the Panic of 1907. There had been ups and downs. The economy had, con- but this was a fairly severe one, and it was also a, it wasn't a localized one. It was a global one, and I think that's one of the things that sometimes Americans forget is that the depression that uh, began in 1929, 1930 wasn't just an American phenomenon. It was a worldwide phenomenon. It was something that affected the whole global economy. And it affected some areas like Germany worse than it affected the United States with consequences. But there was a particular incident. And here's one of these things that sort of touches upon a a repercussion of the, the, the tensions that existed in that period, but also in American history, which has been pretty much and pretty successfully swept under the rug ever since. So Franklin Roosevelt's election was uh, controversial and disturbing to some elements in the country. There was now, even though, remember, is this going to be Rick, is this going to be the Butler story? Yes. Oh, fantastic. I love this. Okay. This is something nobody knows about, but it's exactly what I wanted you to touch on. Exactly. Yeah. It's um, so there was consternation on Wall Street and in certain quarters of the country about what Roosevelt might do. Now, remember, Franklin Roosevelt was certainly no Bolshevik. He was a member of the American ruling class. He was an oligarch. No doubt about that. He's not, I mean, he, his, his family was, you know, he was the closest thing to aristocracy that America could produce. Eastern establishment money. Okay. And in that period, that was what was, was the, the, the ruling class. He was a, a member born into the American ruling class. But nevertheless, he was not entirely trusted by other members of the ruling class because there was, you know, there was the idea of, you know, there was a, there was a serious situation. You know, one of the things that had happened uh, that, that sort of, you know, was a segue in to him being elected was the, the bonus march, I think, in, 19, in 1932, when thousands of essentially out-of-work World War I veterans had marched on Washington, that ought to sound familiar, and had camped out there in a huge shantytown, uh, basically in, a, in this mass protest to demand that Congress authorize the early payment of bonuses that they had been promised when they left the Army af- after the World War. And this was the so-called bonus army, and it was the bonus march. Uh, it wasn't exactly a revolution, but it was one of those things that people thought might turn into one, and that turned into a rather nasty mess because eventually the Hoover administration called in the army to, uh, with tanks, by the way, to uh, break them up, drive them out of Washington, get rid of the rabble, and, and, and destroy them. Well, you had, what, thousands of veterans camping on the mall, yeah. set, you know, a la Thomas Jefferson, demanding other government redress of grievances. And, and it was suppressed with force. Now, now, you can argue that, yes, they were making a huge mess and it was a day. But nevertheless, that, that's, that's what sort of – that was the kind of tension in the country up to this point. 
thousands of angry, impoverished veterans marching on the nation's capital. That was, you know, let's face it, was kind of a threatening maneuver. I mean, you never know what an army of veterans might do. Rick, did we lose you? Hello, hello. Hmm. That's weird. Okay. He just just disappeared there for a moment. <laughs> okay, uh, Keith, you can reconnect, Rick. I I think what he's saying is so interesting because, you know, from our perspective of history, we think everything that's happening on our watch is unprecedented. It's the biggest. It's the most amazing. It's the it's the thing that we've never expected. And what I want Rick to talk about, of course, is that we've been here before and we've actually prevailed. Democracy has expanded, not contracted. So when people are looking at what's currently going on in the political realm in Washington, <clears throat> all I would caution is that, you know, we take a step backward and we, you know, kind of look at a bigger picture and we realize that this country is extraordinarily resilient. I mean, if the last four years haven't shown us its resilience, then nothing will. And although it's tattered and it's full of holes, it's still floating. And, you know, that's part of the uh, mission that I think, uh, that I want Rick to kind of complete in terms of looking at previous slices of American history where things look really, really dark. And um, uh, they, in fact, were, were not that dark. Uh, <clears throat> Keith, how are we, how are we doing with getting Rick back? Okay. I'm waiting for information here. Maybe I should type something. Okay. It's so weird. While we're waiting, just a, a couple of uh, interesting points. Um, uh, most people don't realize that Roosevelt was a Rosicrucian. And uh, there are um, uh, examples on the Internet of Eleanor Roosevelt um, over the radio giving uh, a, a universal esoteric prayer called the Great Invocation. Ah. And, of course, Roosevelt was very interested in the whole Oak Island mystery and was all involved in that at one time. So there was a lot more going on under the surface there in those two. Hmm. <clears throat> there was some very interesting occult background to the whole you know, uh, FDR administrations, starting with, I think it was his agriculture secretary who was totally oh. convinced. Okay, we're having a problem reaching Rick. Apparently, something happened to his line. Um, gosh, just when the sound was... Just when the story is getting good. Yes, yes. Okay, <laughs> so we will continue to try to find out what happened to Rick Spence. Um and uh, we will reconnect him as soon as possible. I want to go back to this big, big picture because you and I have been talking about this time uh, in terms of large cosmic cycles, large cosmic turnover. And you've been right. telling me that – is that Rick? Hello? Was that Rick Spence? No. Oh, okay. Right. Uh, you've been talking about these – these predictions 
from previous, you know, sacred texts that there's mm-hmm. a time coming when everything goes kind of cattywampus. And I'm wondering if we're lo- not looking at one of those times now. We absolutely are. You know, just just like, uh, as I was saying earlier, there's this transition time between winter solstice and Candlemas. That's on the yearly cycle. But when we go Hello. to the... When we go to the great big cycle uh, in the change of an age from the age of Pisces into the age of Aquarius, there's also this overlap time that is completely chaotic and um, the, the direction isn't set, that things are in motion and patterns are, are being configured uh, to set the direction for the unfoldment in the next 2,500 years. Rick, I think you're back with us, right? I am. Fantastic. No, I somehow cut off uh, in the. So oh, where finish, was I? Finish the story. Finish the you story. Were, you were winding up to tell the Butler story with the dislocation of the election of FDR and the really bad feeling between the FDR camp and the uh, Hoover camp. Okay, so I had I gotten to the part where he where um, I where Butler had been approached by Gerald Maguire. Well, well, we hadn't we hadn't introduced Butler yet. We just talked about the election of FDR and the really bad feeling in the country. Oh, okay. Well, I was going on for some time, apparently, when I was cut off. Yep. Uh, until I realized that. All right. So uh, we talked about the bonus march uh, and, and yes. the tensions in the country. You know, what some people thought was, you know, a whiff of potential revolution on the Washington Mall, which, which it may have been. So there were people disturbed about the course of the country, and uh, then that brings in uh, General Smedley Darlington Butler, who was a Marine Corps veteran, the recipient of two Congressional Medals of Honor, and who retired from the Marine Corps around the age of he wasn't you know he wasn't one of the things that will come up later is uh, is his age, and he was actually only in his early fifties. So this is not someone who was an who was an ancient figure. He was a man in his early fifties. Uh, had served in the Marine Corps, many cases in the kind of, you know, interventions, the banana wars in Central America and places like Nicaragua and Haiti, which had uh, taken place in the period from between about 1910 and, and 1930. And after retiring from the Marine Corps, Butler became a kind of open critic of some of the stuff that he had done. Uh, he wrote a, what is sometimes called a book. It's really more a, a pamphlet called War is a Racket. It's kind of interesting reading in which his argument was that, well, you know, a lot of the service I did really wasn't service for the country. It was the service for things like the United Fruit Company and Wall Street interests that I was sent in to protect, and therefore I was a kind of gangster for capitalism. Oh, my God. Was he the the snitch on the United Fruit Company and the CIA and South America and all of that adventure? Well, there wasn't a CIA yet, but there was some element. Uh, you look in particular, in, a lot of Butler's criticism was on two interventions, one in Haiti and then the other in, in Nicaragua. Um, and much, much of his argument was that the, the motivations behind the sending the Marines into Nicaragua, his argument be, wasn't really about establishing a democratic government in Nicaragua. It was about protecting American investments. Right. And mm-hmm. I, I don't mind to disagree with him. That certainly played a major role in it. But the interesting thing is, is that Butler, in, in his public pronouncements, was not friendly towards Wall Street. All right. 
his whole argument was, you know, really that uh, they were um, uh, a, a negative force which had utilized he and other people in the core and elsewhere for who were using the, the to to advance their uh, economic interests um, were using American military forces in a kind of dishonest fashion. So again, he, he said, you know, I was basically turned into a, into a gangster for, for capitalist interests. So the curious thing about that, given that point of view, is to why those same interests, apparently, the same Wall Street interests, or very similar ones, would then turn to him as a kind of potential ally in a scheme which they had developed. And that scheme basically was to institute a fascist style government. They especially admired what Benito Mussolini had done in Italy, right? So Mussolini had taken power in Italy back in 1922. Uh, and they thought that Mussolini had the kind of right idea because he had established a, a, a firm government, you know, a, a, a strong figure at the head of it. And their concern was that Roosevelt was not a strong enough figure to do what needed to be done, or he simply had wrongheaded ideas and needed a stronger hand to control him. So what Gerald Maguire did when he came in late 1933 and approached the now retired general Butler, he goes, look, you're a, you're a widely admired figure. You know, you're a man who's greatly admired, including a lot of those people like those, those veterans that were recently kicked off the mall in Washington. There's a lot of angry, disgruntled people out of there, a lot of former servicemen, and they might not pay attention to a stockbroker or to a banker, but they would pay a tremendous amount of attention to a man like you, remember, to a two-time Congressional Medal of Honor winner, and, and we need you behind us. And we want you, the men I want you represent, want you to help us in establishing, you know, putting the country on the right track. And the plan that Butler, rather, that, that McGuire laid out to Butler was that we don't want to, you know, we don't want to overthrow Franklin Roosevelt. We don't want to remove him from the White House. What we want to do is to simply subordinate him in his presidency to a stronger figure, to essentially a kind of military dictator figure, and under which which will really sort of call the shots, uh, and which Roosevelt will then be uh, compelled to obey. And we you know, hang, hang on, hang on. You're telling sure. the world tonight, the American people through this network and then all over the world, that <clears throat> literally a generation, several generations ago, 75 years, something like that, there was a plan afoot to create a military coup to overthrow the existing Constitution of the United States and install FDR under a military protectorate of some kind. Yes. Basically, it was, they were going to put uh, General Hugh Johnson as the, as the military figure. But the interesting thing is, is that it wasn't going to be a military coup d'etat. It was going to be a popular coup because the reason they wanted to recruit Butler and other men like him was because they wanted him to lend his support and even his leadership to a bigger version of the bonus army. The idea is that we want to mo we want to mobilize hundreds of thousands of veterans and we want to move them on Washington. And that, therefore, you see, won't be an action by a bunch of generals or a bunch of financiers in general. You see, it will represent the apparent will 
of the mass of the American people. We will recruit an army of veterans. We will march them on Washington. Roosevelt will have to go along with this or resign, and we will then establish a true, firm government that will take control of this crisis. Now, what Butler, again, according to what Butler did, was that he decided that he didn't really want to do this, but he goes, well, I'll play along with them and see what they have to say. And mm. so there were other meetings with Milan. And uh, finally, in the latter part of 1934, some months down the road, Butler decided that he was then going to get what he was going to do. I'm going to go to the press and I'm going to spill the beans. And that's what he did. So if you go back and look at American newspapers, New York Times, Philadelphia Inquirer, across the country in the fall of 1934, you will see, you know, for a kind of hot minute that this becomes a, a kind of national scandal. There was a congressional investigation that was called. Certainly there has to be an investigation. There was apparently a plot, again, to subvert the Constitution and to apparently overturn uh, the election of Roosevelt to, to modify the entire constitutional process. And, you know, Butler was brought in to testify, swore to what it was that he had been told. McGuire was brought in. That eventually led them to McGuire's boss, which was a much more important figure by the name of Grayson M.P. Murphy. Um, and Grayson M.P. Murphy was closely connected to, guess what, the J.P. Morgan interests. And then there were the DuPonts and the Guggenheims and other and other were involved in this. So there was a congressional investigation. There's a book. If anybody is interested in one of the few things that's been written about this is the book is by Jules Archer, and it's called The Plot to Seize the White House. Uh, and that will give you the details and the characters and the course of events. I'm giving a pretty quick and dirty rendition here. But this is real. It happened. You can even go through and look in the congressional record that the hearings that were held. And the hearings determined that you know, one of the things the hearings determined in their mind was that, one, there really was a fascist organization that was created, which was trying to carry out some type of coup or, uh, or a revolution within the country, uh, and uh, that there was an actual plot to achieve this. However, here's where it really gets interesting. After all of this kind of fury over this or apparent attention that was given to it was very quickly sort of done away with the press almost totally including again the new york times quite probably piled on and, and and took the view that either butler was senile and simply imagining this happened remember he was i think 53 at the time either this was a senile old man who was simply, you know, out of his mind, or he was, it, it was difficult for them to impugn him as a liar, because one of the things that Butler had developed a pretty good reputation for was forthrightness and truthfulness. You know, it was hard, it was hard to determine that he had been, you know, lied a lot previously in his service. He seemed to be a fairly straight guy. So the only good explanation for it is that, well, he'd just gone batty. But there were the implications of that or that he had simply become confused or there was nothing to it or it was all just a gigantic hoax, you know, that Grace and M.P. Murphy and Gerald Maguire, this was all a hoax. It was some sort of joke they were having. No attention should be paid to it. Congress had an investigation but declined to call any of the major Wall Street figures that were named. Oh, how interesting. 
They do not call them as witnesses. They are never brought in to testify. So after deciding that, yeah, apparently there was a plot to overthrow the government, and that was a bad thing, well, that's it. Go away. Nothing more to see here. And that's why you never read about it in history books, because it was never supposed to have occurred. So hang on, hang on. uh, So let let me get this straight. You basically had a move by a bunch of rich oligarchs to cram FDR and his socialistic, communistic ideas into a box to keep him from enacting anything that would really you know, change the status quo. And when this plot was revealed as originating among the oligarchs, the oligarchs who owned a lot of the major media at that time viciously and successfully suppressed the entire treasonous episode. It was all, it was either just a hoax or it was a joke combat or it was, you know, it had happened. Uh, But, you know, now it's been taken care of. See, apparently there's no more plot anymore, so we don't have to worry about it. But there are are a lot of odd, unexplained things about it. I mean, one is that the, the fellow that was to be installed as the dictator was a retired army general, Hugh Johnson. And the curious thing about that was that Johnson was actually a member of Roosevelt's administration. In fact, he was the first head of the National Recovery Administration. So Johnson is a part of FDR's own administration. That's led to some kind of interesting theories about what was really going on. And one of those theories is that Roosevelt himself was part of this. Um, Yeah, there are two theories. One, that Roosevelt was actually sort of a part of it and was sort of behind this happening until the whole thing, you know, until the the jig was up, so to speak. Um, But, you know, the the Department of Justice basically declined to investigate it because apparently a plot to overthrow the government really wasn't in their bailiwick. They didn't (laughs) want to. You know, it's like, I I don't know. But I think their whole problem was they weren't really sure, well, I don't know, is that that really a crime? I mean, if they didn't do anything, would it be a crime? Well, I mean, the simple thing is that whatever was going, whatever the, whoever was involved in it, big names came up. So when you mention Morgan Guggenheim, DuPont, um, and and uh, uh, those are all names that are you don't want to mess with. Um, and it was simply decided to not really look at it too closely. Uh, Butler never swayed from the statements that he had made uh, and felt, you know, came to feel that he had sort of, you know, wasted his time trying to bring this to the public's attention. There are also connections between this and events in France in the same period. Mm-hmm. So if you look in France in the 1930s, you also find very cha- a very divided country and chaotic politics. And you find exactly the same sort of thing. You find an outfit called the, the, the Banque Worms, uh, which was a new but important financial institution in France. Uh, various government ministers... Uh, again, seeking to bring about a crisis to uh, a crisis that would lead that would precipitate the creation of what was either called a synarchist or a fascist regime that would be backed by you know big business and finance, uh, banks and industry in in France would would establish a dictatorship that they view would protect their interests as as Mussolini said. Uh, had, in their minds, had, had achieved in Italy, and that Hitler was about to achieve in Germany. So there's, a, there's an international 
dimension to this. Uh, and people like Grayson M.P. Murphy uh, had actually made a visit to France around the same time as these these as these uh, as these events were going on. You, but this again is one of those things you'll never read about in any American history book because I think simply because the idea of trying to deny that anything like this. You know, as soon as it was revealed, there were the efforts to deny that there was anything there at all. It's see, so, we've made it go away so it never happened. It's so un-American. My guest this morning is Dr. Richard Spence and Georgia Lambert. And Rick Levine was with us and has now gone on to other things. Here's something that would not be, uh, the season would not be complete without me playing this. This is my favorite Christmas song. Yes, we're still in the 12 days. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We had a star, a Christmas star this year, the conjunction between Jupiter and Saturn, the first time visible in 800 years. We shall return. Said the shepherd boy to the mighty king, Do you know what I know? What I know what I In your palace, warm mighty king, Do you know what I know? What I know? A child, a child, shivers in the cold. Let us bring him silver and gold. Let us bring him silver and gold. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Listen to what I say. Pray for peace, people everywhere. Listen to what I say. And welcome back, everyone, to this uh, episode of The Other Side of Midnight. For Saturday night, June 2nd, grading into Sunday morning, June 3rd, and look at the sky. You know, one of the things that I wanted to complete before Rick had to leave was the kind of uh, uh, rather bizarre story 
that I was talking about in terms of what the president, this president is currently uh, potentially up to, because everybody wonders, uh, I certainly did, as to why um, there would be this delay, which politically made zero sense. <clears throat> why would the president wait after everything had been planned, set up in uh, Mar-a-Lago to do this big signing thing and, you know, he had come out in favor of even more money for uh, direct supplemental incomes until the economy is back in, in, in some reasonable shape. And then everything got put on hold. And then I found out something really bizarre. If you go to the other side of midnight.com, uh, which is our home homepage, go to that, click on uh, that banner tonight which basically says we've been here before and prevail. Click on that. That will take you to tonight's show page. Scroll down just a little bit, and you'll see my uh, two sets of items there. Item number two, it turns out that buried in this coronavirus national budget compendium, this smashed-together bill, the $2.3 trillion, there's a little codicil a little committee commentary from the Senate Intelligence Committee of the U.S. Senate. And under law, 180 days from the president signing this joint bill, which he did a week ago last Sunday night, the 27th, the clock starts ticking and 180 days after that signing, there needs to be a major public report under law through the Senate Intelligence Committee on all the bizarre UFO sightings that have been part of the secret discussions and briefings that, that Stephen Bassett has been telling us about. And this will all come out under Senator Mark Rubio, and the clock started ticking the night the Trump signed the bill. So instead of running from the 21st of, 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 of December, the solstice with the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn, instead of signing the bill that night or on Christmas Eve in Mar-a-Lago a few nights later, it waited two additional days. So the total time is 186 days. And what I wanted to ask Rick was, where does that put us in the astrological calendar in terms of effectuating major paradigm changes when the U.S. government officially begins the disclosure process now under law, which Trump signed literally just a couple days ago? And since I don't have Levine here, let me turn to Georgia Lambert, Georgia what happens in the middle of the summer, which is what this new date now has decided as the window for disclosure? What happens uh, metaphysically in terms of this annual cycle somewhere around June, July of 2021? Well, in terms of the yearly cycle, um, the high point of the year is the full moon of Taurus in the spring. This is uh, described uh, in the East as the Waisak Festival, when the Buddha 
descends from his high place to bless the earth. This is the time when uh, the new juice for the year comes in at that high point in the spring. But it doesn't really hit humanity until we move into that summer period. And I'm not sure how close that would be. I, I haven't calculated the 186 days you mentioned. But does that bring us into the influence of the star Sirius and the dog days of the summer? I don't yes, know. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and it's like we've written this plot. Because, and Rick, so there you go. Rick, and and that's, that's the time when the, the abstract juice, you know, energy-wise, that comes in in the spring that determines what wisdom to be unfolded within humanity for the rest of the year. And it's at that end of summer that it begins to really hit humanity's brain awareness. Hmm. And they become cognizant of this new activity and movement, but it would, it would put us, I would think under that Syrian influence. That's exactly right. And of course the Syrian influence is that every spring, actually every summer, late summer for 70 days in the summer, Sirius disappears from the winter, from the nighttime sky, the summer skies in the Northern hemisphere and reappears at what's called the helical rising uh, about 70 days after it initially disappears. <clears throat> well, because of the way celestial events are going on these days, that disappearance and reappearance, the, 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 the reappearance factor is critical because Sirius in Egypt now reappears at the dawn of the 19th or the 20th of July. And of course, the solstice is one month earlier, the 21st, 20th of June. Okay, with right. me so far? Yep. <clears throat> the rising and setting of Sirius, which is so indicative of the sacred Egyptian calendar, everything is marked on that, occurs in a, in a sequence of, of temporal events called the Sothic Cycle, which repeats in the sky every 1,400 and 61 years. So you've got this enormous amount of time that goes on, and then the relative positions of Sirius to other constellations, the pyramids in Egypt and all that, repeats again and again every 1,461 solar years, right? And you've heard me on the show talk about this fundamental deep Egyptian connection between the U.S. presidency and the entire pageant of what being president is supposed to mean and did mean up until the sudden appearance of, you know, President Donald Trump, who's done everything to flout every convention of the presidency one can imagine and a whole bunch that one cannot imagine. Well, here's the primary connection. If Trump delayed that signing so that it has some particular astrological influence six months later, so it occurs within that certain window, that window, I believe, is going to ultimately trace back to Sirius. Do you know why? And this is something that I've looked at for years and years and years, and it didn't hit me until literally just a couple of days ago. 
There are 1461 days in the Sophic sacred cycle of the reappearance of the star Sirius over the northern hemisphere of the Earth, right? Sounds good. There are 1461 days in the four-year annual presidential election cycle. You know, in some esoteric books, it is said that uh, the British Empire was reincarnated Rome, but America is reincarnated Egypt. Well, tomorrow night I'm going to have a guest on who's going to actually argue that, in fact, it is Rome that we're reincarnating. Uh, I'm going to have a great deal of fun discussing it with him because there's evidence on both sides. But, Georgia, I'm kind of with you. I think that it predates Rome. It's much more Egyptian. And the idea that you have in the presidential cycle, 1461 days compared to 1461 years in the Sothic cycle connected intimately in terms of the mythologies around the presidency and Horus and, and uh, you know, Osiris and Isis I mean, that's just a staggering coincidence, which cannot be, Rick, back again, that cannot be a coincidence. That was established in the founding principles of the transition between presidency and presidency. So what Trump is doing by arguing strenuously against this coming transition, he's basically arguing against a cosmic cycle which connects Earth and the star Sirius itself, and saying it has no more meaning. Talk about paradigm shifts. You know, He's trying to screw uh, around well, the cosmos. Yes, and, 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 and the ritual cycles <laughs> built around the cosmos, embedded in the creation of this most extraordinary democratic experiment on the face of the planet. Also in esoteric books, uh, it talks about the spiritual hierarchy of our planet called many different things, the communion of saints, the invisible college, there's, there's many names for it, that, um, that our spiritual hierarchy on this planet, um, which in an earlier time walked among humanity openly, um, but that's a whole nother story that this spiritual hierarchy on this planet is a rusting outpost from the greater hierarchy uh, on Sirius. So there's all kinds of connections um, on all different levels of esoterica. Wow. Now that's very intriguing. And in, 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 so um, Rick, let's go back to American history. If we're coming up to a huge juncture and again, the, the, the the closest analogy I can think of is the step function between Hoover and FDR. I mean, some have argued that the assassination of Kennedy and Johnson and the Civil Rights Act and all that. But my feeling is that that's narrower than the societal changes that were instilled by the FDR transition through four consecutive administrations before the enactment of the uh, 25th Amendment. Yeah, I mean, 
it generally isn't one of those things reflected upon a lot, but uh, Franklin Roosevelt probably became the closest thing to a dictator the country has ever had. Because let's put it this way, he was president longer than anyone else. <laughs> and eventually the whole limitation of those terms was brought in, apparently to prevent anyone else from doing that, doing that again. And keep in mind, I didn't say that FDR was a dictator. I said he was the closest thing that the United States, or at least the United States presidential system, has produced. Well, let's put it this way. He was in office for a long time. That was a good deal of... Let's, well, Franklin Roosevelt was in power pretty much the same amount of time that Adolf Hitler was. Hmm. All right? Um, and From 34 a, through 45. Yeah. All right? So their, their terms in office overlap almost exactly. And it was the same political crisis that brought both of them to to power. Uh, and remember, again, Roosevelt had some interesting ideas about changing the nature of the Supreme Court, and said, you know, so there was. Didn't I would say it? It was one of those things that, under the circum, under other circumstances, might have morphed into an outright dictatorship, but which, for, you know, through fate or luck, didn't quite. Under under those circumstances, so it's um, you know it, it, if I can go back a minute to the thing you just brought up about the the connection between the United States and Egypt, mm. and the thing that you mentioned that is that it's one of those things that for me was this little kind of um, synchronicity thing because just within the last twenty four hours I was having some a, a kind of email discussion with someone. Who had who had sent old recordings? Oh, this is this very very recent then. Yeah, I mean, this just just happened. The whole thing was sort of on my mind, and it was a recording that was supposedly done back in the 1970s by a fellow that I don't know. Some of your listeners may know who's who he was, but you may not. You ever heard of a fellow by the name of James Shelby Downard? No. Okay, well, there's no particular reason why you should. But James Shelby Downard, if you check around, is one of those characters who is who has achieved a certain prominence in the kind of American conspirosphere. Right? He was he um, uh, wrote a a, a, a book uh, called King Kill, not a book, but a, really a kind of article called King Kill Thirty Three, which is this you know, supposedly esoteric interpretation of the Kennedy assassination. I don't want to go off too far into Downard, but Downard was Downard was uh, he may well have been totally insane. All right, he may not have been. Okay, I am an agnostic on that point. I'm never really sure, you know, to what degree of craziness is going on there. But Downard was not ignorant all right he was you know perhaps selectively and bizarrely educated but he had educated himself and one of the things in this talk he supposedly was giving uh in the um which i think was something called the serious rising tapes hmm. at any rate he's talking about how the mississippi is a kind of parallel to the nile oh that's interesting and that there were 
and that there were groups. And, and you pointed out the fact that, you know, the Mississippi to me kind of flows a different way. But <laughs> but if you if you sort of follow the Mississippi up and you come to the point where it's at the very bottom of Illinois, tiny southern tip of Illinois, and the, the Ohio River then sort of splits off and goes to the east, which sort of makes it kind of mimics the, the delta of the Nile. And to show you that people were conscious of this, if you look at the town that sets right at that confluence of the two rivers. It's what is called Cairo, but it's Cairo. And that's oh, why it's there. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Because the founders of the town realized that, hey, this kind of looks like the Nile, so let's name our town <laughs> Cairo. Uh, and, and, and he mentioned this fact, you know, if you follow the Ohio up, this other branch of the Delta, it goes to Wheeling, West Virginia, and that there's a large Masonic temple of Osiris in Wheeling, West Virginia, which I'd never heard of, and there is, by the way. And so his saying is that, that from this kind of esoteric or magical interpretation that the Mississippi is the Nile and that therefore the land surrounding it, including more broadly America as a whole, is in some way mystically connected to Egypt. Hmm. And, and you, I don't you, know what that means, except that you, that's, you that's, have, yeah. you, you have, uh, I mean, Memphis, you know, Memphis, yes, Tennessee. Memphis. Uh, and, and, you know, in, in the realms of forbidden archaeology, there have been Egyptian artifacts found along the Mississippi. And I remember reading somewhere that some of the copper in, in um, some of the, the copper mines uh, in the, the northern part of the, the Mississippi area, that some of that copper was used in Egypt. So well, there, this gets into the work. An actual, an actual connection. This gets into the work of Barry Fell, and yeah. the guest I had on a couple of weeks ago, Scott Walter, <clears throat> and a whole pre-Columbian, you know, right. travel history of people who came here and put down roots. And there's a very prominent Egyptian presence in terms of artifacts that have been quietly swept under the rug by by the mainstream. That, right. you know, Rick's story is, is certainly, I mean, I, I wonder myself, what caused this sudden spate of all this Egyptian naming along the Mississippi? Well, and, and what's the, the prominent monument honoring George Washington and the mall in Washington, D.C.? <laughs> A big Egyptian looking and, phallus thingy? Yeah, the, the obelisk. And do you know what the original design was? It wasn't an obelisk. It oh, was a pyramid. <laughs> I know. I know. No, no. The so, the underpinnings of Egyptian influence, ancient Egyptian influence on American history is something, Rick, that's, I don't think, totally appreciated by anybody. But when I found this well, again, numerical I, coincidence, it's obvious what the founders were doing in setting up a precise 1461 Julian date interval for the U.S. presidency, which is exactly the Sophic cycle in days as opposed to years, that cannot be other than a plan. Clearly, the Egyptian thing was on people's minds. So hmm. I don't know exactly what I'm saying. I don't know exactly what that means, but it it wasn't just a one-off. It wasn't like this occurred just in Congress or, you know, it was people named towns 
in, in, in commemoration of Egypt, monuments, Egyptian-style monuments created, and, you know... Well, look at Powell and, and the entire nomenclature of the Grand Canyon. Yeah. Which is stunningly replete with Masonic and ancient Egyptian and uh, other other place names that are, you know, literally thousands upon thousands of miles apart. I want to give out some numbers because if anybody else wants to join the conversation, I know that one of our members, Ron, is listening. We were going to do a bit of discussion about Apollo and history and forecasting what could happen this coming year. So if you want to join our merry band, call 917-889-8802. That's 917-889-8802. And Keith will keep an eye open. And he will let me know when you are ready to join the conversation. If you want to ask a question or you have something to impart, I want to get back to this idea, this almost metaphysical idea, Georgia, that what we're going through now is something so fundamental, so, so archetypal, that the idea of people looking at similar information coming to radically different conclusions. I mean, that's that's not a trivial academic exercise, because if this begins to depart more and more from where people can talk to each other about a common experience, ultimately, you cannot have a society unless you have common shared experience. Right. Um, This goes back to what I was talking about before, the, the metaphysical idea that we're in the third phase of the World War and... It's a, it's a battleground of ideas. Um, metaphysically, the, the plane of mind is divided in half. The lower half is called the lower concrete mind. This is the intellect, the, the brain awareness. But there's a higher level of mind that's attained in high points of meditation. And this is called higher abstract mind. This is where the wisdom of humanity's soul begins to seep into the consciousness here uh, within the human experience. And this battleground that's taking place, there are forces, we could call them the owls, that want to keep humanity asleep, that want to put a, a ceiling between lower concrete mind and higher abstract mind so that the greater wisdom of humanity can't get through and the status quo can be kept. There are others, call them the roosters, that want humanity to wake up to this bigger life that we're living in, in terms of our solar system and our universe and so on and so forth, that want that higher abstract mind to have clear circulatory access to the lower concrete mind so that we can kind of comprehend this bigger life in in which we live. And this battle is being fought out to keep the status quo and control what reality is here or open it up to a bigger reality, which means a a huge expansion of humanity's consciousness. Hmm. Rick, I just have this feeling, and again, it's based on analysis that's different from yours, but that we're coming up to an extraordinary step function. And I've discussed off the air with Georgia a couple of times that we're being presented as human beings, 7 billion human beings all over the world because of the pandemic 
all kinds of choice, hard choices are being forced upon people who would not have been forced in this time frame to make these choices, except they can't defer them. They have to make them now. And the now turns out to coincide with the weird things going on behind the scenes. Again, specifics, can we predict general trends based on what we see in the public landscape going on right now? I mean, I just was freaking out that Rick's window and the political window that you and I talk about this year, it's the same damn window. Well, it's certainly interesting. Well, let me see if I can, I can bring in a story here. I'm I'm not sure how much it addresses. It it comes back to this question of, of what's real. I tell you what, we got about two minutes till the uh, bottom of the hour. So let's set up the tease and we'll finish it on the other side. All right. Well, what it has to do is with wolves in Nova Scotia or not wolves in Nova Scotia. Okay. So what does that have to do with anything? Um, It has to do with psychological operations, and it has to do with, uh, I think, an attempt to sort of create a reality and see what happens. Oh, no, that's interesting because, again, uh, George, you and I have discussed, you know, there are movements afoot to try to imprint the future. If if this physics cyclic business has any meaning, there should be a window where consciousness can basically uh, remember that great line in, in close encounters where one of the technicians says, you know, it's such and such time we're taking over this conversation. Now should all the recorders, you know, the big Ampex recorders start doing whatever they're doing. It's like humanity is being presented with an option. Make a big decision now. It's it's kind of like, do we listen to that bigger music or do we let loose the monsters from the id? Well, even some of the political conversation on the other side, um, like one of one of uh, the president's uh, attorneys, a gal named Sidney Powell, has been talking over and over and over again about something called release the Kraken, which is so out of mythology and Norse mythology and the end of days the end of times, Ragnarok, et cetera, et cetera. I cannot help but wonder, is that just a kind of a mythological coincidence? Or does she have a deeper meaning? Or does she not even know her deeper meaning when she portrays this as a moment of to release the Kraken? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. My guests this morning are Dr. Richard Spence, and George Lambert, our resident historian and metaphysicians, respectively. We shall return.
tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone. Last half hour on this uh, special New Year's program, The Other Side of Midnight, uh, January 2nd, grading into January 3rd. We have some callers on the line, so let me get the right screen up here. Come on, come on, come on. You were there a moment ago. There you are. Okay. 727. We're going to put you on the air, so sign in, please. 727. This is Stephen in Clearwater. How are you tonight? Hi, Stephen. Um, New Year. One thing I, yeah, one thing I noticed is, you know, if you're playing games, and we used to do this, that, uh, you know, you take your birthday, and you're so many years old, and you figure out when your sidereal birthday was, what time of day, what time your tropical birthday was, and what time your calendar birthday was. The interesting thing about four years is it's the only, every four years, the calendar year is precisely between the sidereal year and the tropical year. Do you follow what I mean? In yep. other words, for it, the, the tropical is slightly less than the calendar. The sidereal, it, sidereal is slightly more. I don't know if that has anything to do with anything, but also a lot of people say the, administ- the four-year cycle for an administration is symbolic. For instance, when you first come in your first year, it's spring, it's new, it's then the summer, that's when you get most of your work done in the second year. Then you start to, you know, like most administrations, they start to go down, and then the winter is when you leave. And I don't know, I think it's just so symbolic in so many ways that I think you're right, that four-year cycle, because senators are six, uh, representatives are two. It's only the presidency I know that's four. I don't, unless someone else can think of it, but it's just food for thought. Hmm. Rick, thoughts? Well, they had to pick a number. <laughs> and, yeah, uh, that's true. I, but you know, again, it's it, it comes back to like the naming of towns and and the style of monuments. One of the things you have to keep in mind is that there's a reason why people do these things. I mean, it wasn't. I don't. I don't think it was because you know they they threw a six sided die and they came up four, and that's the number of years they're going to have. There was, uh, but the precise reason for it is, you know, it's one of those things. It could be magical, or it could be mundane, <laughs> depending on on how it was made. 
Well, it's a bit of history I would like to know, and I'm sure it's buried in some book somewhere, probably under, under, uh, you know, uh, uh, Franklin. But the idea that this synchronicity is just by accident, given the deep, deep, I mean, the very term president means in Egyptian, the first of the Westerners having to do with birth and death and the pyramids on the other side of the Nile and all that. So this discovery that the, that the, that the actual serving dates between inauguration and the next inauguration is an exact replica of this incredible, serious terrestrial calendrical influence given the background and other Egyptian knowledge we have from the founders I just don't think it can be coincidence. I think it's a careful, planned, designed, designed to invoke something. And this this sequence, this this part of the cycle, incredibly important what it is designed to invoke. Georgia, what do you think? Well. Oh, go, go ahead, Rick. Well, no, I'm just going to say it, it comes down to this question. What's a coincidence? I mean, co- coincidence is a term often thrown around as if it means an accident, which it's not the same thing. A coincidence and an accident aren't the same. Okay. A coincidence is simply a coincidence, <laughs> and that could, that can that can be accidental or it can be deliberate. So, it's it's a vague term at best, but it doesn't necessarily mean accidental. Okay, let me bring Ron on because Ron. Uh... Uh, Gerbron has some interesting thoughts. Do the right thing here. And Ron, you should be on the air. Yes, Crick in here. Uh, there you are. Yeah. Yes. Nobody heard that. Okay. I, Go uh, ahead. Okay. No, I thought I, I said Crick in here. Um, I've been uh, listening to, I've been listening to this and the, as far as the cycle, I do not have, a greater depth of astrological knowledge than um, probably either of your um, guests there or, or the departed Rick, but um, it seems to me that the um, cycle uh, might have something to, oh, by the way, I mentioned Kraken because the Kraken is Greek. That's, I do nitpick about mythology and that's, <laughs> that's Greek. That, that's great. That's Greek myth. And it may or may not matter. But the Greeks, uh, the Greek civilization in classical times uh, started their new year uh, on the autumnal equinox. Or wait, Which goes it, back the, uh, to the various physics of the various parts of the yearly cycle, and not all parts of the cycle are equal. Yeah, it's the A time when everything starts. Huh? A lot of yes, ancient... Georgia? Yeah, a lot of ancient peoples had their New Year at the autumn equinox. Uh, Do we know why? Well, Well, they all had different reasons. Yeah, go ahead. You you try. Yeah, the Greek the Greek story. This is when Persephone descends into the underworld, right? Right. So it's a it's a, a big nodal point. So it's a big life and death and recursion thingy. Yeah, and the Celts, of course, this was the festival of Samhain, or uh, Halloween as we call it today, which is, you know, when the veil between the worlds grows thin and you can slip easily from one dimension into another. 
the late and, Middle Ages, even even in Europe, that New Year's was in March. It was the spring. Right. Because the college, because yeah. right for everybody else, it was the spring one. It was the uh, it was because the yeah. the sun was plodding along on its way and the earth on its cycle, and that didn't change. But the calendars had slipped completely out of reach, and uh, that's why it was Julius Caesar that came up with a um, new improved calendar. But it didn't really go into effect until 1752, believe it or not. In a lot of places, it yeah. was uh, so. It, yeah, you wouldn't want to be a calendar salesman before the um, 19th century, for sure. Well, wait, wait. was that the Julian calendar or was that the Gregorian calendar? Because I know when the transition was made, there was a lot of lagging in major parts of Europe between the adaptation of the Gregorian calendar up until relatively late. Yeah, they lost 11 days in September. They had street riots about it. Everyone can't talk at once. Oh. Rick? Oh. I'm saying there's. I, I think uh, the guest was saying the same thing. It's there's when you switched over from one to the other. Um, it's like the, the Russian calendar. You know, the the uh, the the old style is now 14 days apparently behind our calendar, which is the Julian. Yes. Right. Well, we're on the right. Gregorian. The astronomers use the Julian because of the consecutive days, but the civil yeah. calendar is the Gregorian calendar. And uh, it's it took a long while politically to get parts of the of the the realm to basically adapt a common reality. I mean, you can't get any more common than keeping time, right? Yeah, there were, exactly. there were huge portions of this planet that did not even agree on common time until relatively recently. Right. That was the that was my point. Exactly. We um, we didn't get set. we that didn't become a stable point that could be used to um, measure other things uh, until, like I said, uh, what 1752. I think they finally settled, except for Sweden, who their old style calendar their old style calendar is 13 days off instead of uh, the 14 of the Russians or the 11 days of the um, original math. And I forget exactly why, but it, 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 there's a Swedish reason, whatever it was. <laughs> well, it has, it has to do with with, well, there, with leap year. The, the, the new calendar introduced leap year so that you would you would catch up, because otherwise you uh, you essentially fall behind a day per century. Right, and so then you That's get back to the same problem that everybody had had before. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, leap year that makes sense. Yeah. It, uh, so that yeah. does have a bearing on all this other stuff because a lot of times the dates people are using to judge things by or relative to are not uh, what they think they are. I mean, the Egyptians used to throw out decades because they didn't really care what anybody else thought. They would erase entire dynasties from their official records. The thing, the solid history. I heard somebody earlier saying something about history being. Um, you know, once it's written down, it means something. Well, it's, uh, yeah, it used to be a, a narrative, not a, uh, not an actual um, statistic. It, it used to be interpretive most of the time in most places. And so therefore they would in, inflate things they liked, uh, suppress things they didn't like. And so it wasn't a time standard. Well, the old, the old cliche, <clears throat> history is written by the victors. 
That's right. where that came from. There was no objective history. You know, Richard's profession was is very, very new. History for most of humanity, and obviously you can agree or disagree, Rick, is basically been storytelling by the winners. Yes. Who else? <laughs> and, and also one's perspective. The man you has know. a point. If you look at medieval paintings of, for instance, a, a feast scene, you'll see the king and the queen and the nobles at the high table, very large, and the little servers at the size of children. And it wasn't that they didn't have perspective, even though perspective didn't come in till much later, but their perspective was their status. The servants were far, far less than the people at the high table. So in those paintings, they painted them really tiny, not because they physically saw them as tiny. <laughs> oh, and I thought it was on yeah. those old movies that that's where the idea of the children's no. table came from. <laughs> no, it was, a, it, was, no, it, was it was the dwarves. Was that's what they. Yeah. It's yeah. all about re- no. visually reinforcing social dynamics. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Which comes from the ancient Egyptians, strangely enough. I mean, in terms yeah. of visual portrayals of that, nobody, they didn't do it before that or after it was. And so why did those medieval Europeans decide to paint things that way? I think there was a lot more influence of that sort of stuff than we realize. Because if you look, if you just blame it all on the Templars or, or any form of Illuminati you like, they're always supposed to be masterful um, Masterful manipulators of information and data, and so that's exactly the kind of influence that they would Im, uh, impart upon the society by taking seemingly innocent things uh, and embedding messages in them. So I don't think it was because about, most people. Yeah. Yeah, Ron, we got about fifteen minutes to the end of the show, and I want to come back to this idea of shared reality. Uh, some things that you said, Georgia. Because in an era, Rick, where more and more people are segregated voluntarily behind their bubbles, internet, media, Twitter, Facebook, whatever, and we don't have, as Peter Jennings used to talk about, the common campfire, because he talked about television, network television, forming the function during national crises of a place where everybody could assemble and all kind of share and discuss and meditate on, on the experience together simultaneously, the more the trend curve is that we're breaking these reality bubbles into smaller and smaller unshared realities. Rick, at what point do we reach the point of no return and we no longer can talk to anybody because nobody is sharing any other experience. Well, we'll just talk to fewer and fewer people. But you but, know, there's a way to reverse that, Richard. Destroy technological civilization, and we'll all go back to telling stories around the campfire. I think that's a little drastic. Well, I yeah, think that will kill several billion people as a, as a side effect. I'm being very serious, because we, will. we can't unconnect our technology we have to un we have to undecide not to decide about where it's taking us. And I'm Well in- you do know that there have been people 
I think even some of the British royal family who proposed the idea remembered that if 90% of the human race vanished from the earth, it would be the best thing that ever happened. I have seen those stories. I've seen that, that you know, paper trail. Sure. Um, sure. There's a lot of different perspectives on, you know, human beings treading lightly on the earth. One of my big bones of contention is four years ago, Trump in his inaugural promised us amazing technological advances all the secret technologies, the black ops people, all the stuff that we know because it's the physics is there and nothing's happened in four years. Is something going to happen? And it's really odd tonight that is literally 19 and a half days till the inauguration from, I think, tonight. 19 and a half days, I believe. You know, another, well, another way to snap us back into some sort of common... Uh, reality is to have an event so large that it cannot be denied that it is worldwide and affects everybody's consciousness and worldview. That's why I thought this ticking UFO time bomb in this big thing that, you know, he made a big deal about not signing, not signing, not signing, and then suddenly with no explanation, okay, you know, hand it to me, I'll sign it. That all implies to me a hidden agenda. And then when I discovered this little codicil, where under law in 180 days from the signing, we're going to find out through the Senate Intelligence Committee in open session what the hell was zipping around the Nimitz and the other parts of the aircraft carrier fleet and what's diving in seconds from 80,000 feet down to sea level and then back up again. And what's appearing on all those FLIR cameras in the middle of a pandemic where the, where the Pentagon is adjudicating the reality of what would be commonly called by the mainstream press UFO video and photographs. I've been asking for a long time now, are there at least two realities? And the one that we've been given, this distraction is really to cover up what's been going on behind the scenes vis-a-vis something out there which the clock is going to begin to unveil in less than 180 days from tonight. I predict there will be a great effort made to stop it from happening. In what way? Uh, Well, okay, this this is a purely political perspective. But uh, the uh, based on what you people were saying earlier, uh, I think that the timing of everything that's been going on with Trump recently, the uh, his dogged refusal to um, concede to something that he is convinced was fraudulently produced, and I am too. I'm sorry, I can get as objective as I like, but it's too it's way too hinky. So usually they shrug it off. Richard Nixon famously was uh it's been it's been proven rather solidly yes the uh, he actually did win but uh against kennedy but he was uh you know it was uh dead people voting in chicago etc and he elected to not disturb the feathers of the american politic uh and uh graciously stepped away rather than fight it out trump is not like that his whole life he has people forget what's the name of his book the Art of the Deal. Where did that name come from? It's a reference to the art of war. 
he has been studying and becoming a masterful wielder of the art of information warfare for 50 years. And if you read The Art of War, it says things like act foolishly so that your uh, opponent won't take you seriously and uh, things like that. He's drawing out the entire deep state. Now, I don't know whether it will work or not, but, you know, that's why he's sticking to it. Aside from the fact that he never backs down, Uh, he will concede, but he won't back down. And he thinks it's wrong, so he's fighting it out. I don't think that's that part's any more complicated than that. But he's trying to draw out the entire deep state apparatus who are always hidden behind the shadows. And they can't hide and deal with this. So we're beginning to see it. We're beginning to see the only difference between Mark Zuckerberg and Lex Luthor is that uh, Zuckerberg has, still has his hair. You know, there's an awful lot of... There's an, there's an awful lot of egotistical oligarchs involved in this situation, and I personally don't think they should be allowed to win. It's not something you ride out. I mean, it's a, that is the problem. You know, you're right. The congressional things, they can get sorted out. It may take a while. Uh, interpretations of law, that's fine, but clearly a lot of the judiciary have not been doing their due diligence because they're scared in their own position. They don't want the Supreme Court to get stuffed to make them irrelevant, and yet they want to remain quietly irrelevant, live in their nice house, collect their salary, and not deal with anything that might become case law, because then people would keep coming back at them. And I find that reprehensible behavior on the part of every single one of them, but nobody has any guts, but a few of the people in the Congress do. You know, it's not a question of, okay, we have to win. We have to win. No, you have to try to win. You have to put your all in there. So that's all I think is going on there. And it's, it's not terribly metaphysical. But as to the placement of the 1461 uh, in the equation, that's a brilliant insight. Good job, Richard. Where, wherever that, that's, uh, I don't know what it means yet, but yeah, that's not even a coincidence. That's, that's got to mean something because the timing was funny. You know you know, you know me. I only take them as far as I think they go, and as far, so far mm-hmm. as far as it goes. I, I did have a really interesting connection with the Chinese space program and your, the cave in Utah, but I didn't know I was going to be on it. Also, I didn't upload the stuff, but you'll laugh when you see it. Well, tell us. This is radio. We can always for the radio with pictures crowd in Club nineteen point five. Okay. Well, everybody I, is now. Okay. In terms of major paradigm shifts. To me, it's remarkably important that at the same time the world is freaking about, out about death and dying and a pandemic that is uncontrollable. Every time a nation seems to get a handle on it, something happens. Look at this sudden magical appearance of strain number four, which is 70% more infective. And of course, the way this thing is killing people is it's being very effective and going from person to person to person. So you start out from a high infective level, then you go to an even higher infective level, and there are people looking at this and they're saying, oh, there's, there's no way this is, this is artificial. This is just a natural segue from bats to some other animal in a market in China, et cetera, et cetera. And as you know, I and Chandrawik Ramasinghe have been looking for months now at an alternative explanation that whatever's going on out there <clears throat> meaning the war uh, uh, uh-huh. that you referred to has impinged on the cradle here now. And the whole COVID thing is part of a much 
larger secret diverted uh, confrontation that all sides do not think we are ready to know about. And the head of the Israeli space effort the other day, now retired, said as much on the record after 30 years. You know, in a sense, we are the adversary in a uh, of these forces that we can't see, can't talk to, can't interact with and uh, directly because they don't want to. And it's because they're looking down their noses or whatever they have in that regard uh, toward us. And I think that uh, you got to remember one of the primary war rules of warfare. The enemy gets a vote. In that context, we're the enemy. We're not getting a vote. You know, in the in the grand intergalactic thing, uh, I think somebody pulled a switch up there uh, that they weren't supposed to pull, and tumbled the whole thing. Tumbled the whole thing a bit. Well, but but as me, far let me, as let me hang on, hang on, let me let me stop you there, because <clears throat> okay. on yeah. somebody pulled the switch at exactly the right time to affect what's going to happen because of the interpenetration of all these cosmic energy cycles, and it's forcing decisions and choices on a planetary scale that would not have been forced, would not have been confronted without this really stark reality inserted in this model from outside the planet. I'll buy that. Yeah. That, that's why that's a way to that's a way to put it. Oh, just in case anybody wonders, I hate dangling sentences. The bit about the Chinese and the monoliths, and I'm not connecting them to them, is just funny. Everyone knows, we don't need the pictures for this, what that little canyon in Utah looks like. Uh, uh, well, I found a picture when I was doing some research on, the, on perseverance of all things, and here's this picture of a Chinese, what do they call their astronauts? Do you happen to know? Tigernaut. Tychonaut, uh, thank you. Yeah, the, okay, they have one of their Tychonauts in a very anime-looking spacesuit, uh, you know, round helmet, all, all white. It's, it's really very cute, but it, I don't know. Um, and this was sometime the end of last year, this picture was taken, apparently, and they are in their, uh, like we used to send the astronauts for training to Antarctica and stuff, they sent right. them someplace. And the, pic, the picture is over a year old, and he's standing in a small red rock canyon that looks exactly like a close if he was standing in the one in Utah and they went in close he couldn't see the rest of it you'd say mm. okay he's standing there right near the monolith so I speaking of coincidences I found that very very interesting I don't know if it means anything at all in the ether and it's all about resonant frequencies guys we got about two minutes yeah. to the end of the show uh, Rick you want to start us off what are your thoughts well <laughs> I guess the question you keep asking me is what's going to happen. And the most I'm going to say is something will, and it won't be the end of the world. All right. That's, that's the, because I, I, you know, she may We're just, we're just going to have to wait and see that that's, you know, you have to develop patience in this situation. Mm. One has to be patient. We can't force the, whatever is going to happen is going to happen in its own time. Whether it's the stars that are controlling it, whether it's the deep state that is controlling it, whatever it is, you and I aren't controlling it. And we're going to have to, we need to be vigilant. We need to pay attention to information. We don't need to panic every time, you know, it's, it's a bit like the statement you made that someone has decided that the fourth strain of COVID is 70% more. How on earth could they determine that in that short of a period of time? 
Well, it's for lab tests. It's basically you expose a bunch of hamsters, and and that number came out interesting. Yeah. They could determine that it was exactly 70% more infectious. See, that sounds like a false statistic to me. Okay. That sounds like somebody spitballing. <laughs> well, anything above believe- 10% more. I mean, when you're yeah. when you're looking at infectivity, this thing gallops along so rapidly, and there are people who are not showing symptoms, and they're the ones that are a problem. Anyway, it's a long, deep discussion. Yeah. We're basically down to the last 30 30- Georgia? The Buddhists say that this is all the world of illusion, that it's all a big game, but it's important for us to play it as if it were real. Hmm. And so, until tomorrow night, same time, same bad channel, I invite you all back for the romanization of American history. And there's some really interesting evidence that shows that the complicated story is even more complicated. So until tomorrow night, remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone, and stay safe out there. <laughs>